I'd listen to your book on tape. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's very kind of you. I would work harder on the accents if I was doing the whole book. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing The Long Earth, a collaboration between Terry Pratchett and Stephen Baxter, which could be better known as a really literal interpretation of an episode of Neighbours. And our guest is podcaster, writer, and editor Joel Martin. Welcome, Joel. Hi, how you doing, Ben? How you doing, Liz? Good, it's nice to have you back. Yes, it's good to be back. Yeah, and what better book to get you back for than Pratchett's like return to hard science fiction? Well, sort of. Sort is of. it his return <laughs> to hard science fiction, or is he not really a big author in this one? Oh, that's a... Ooh. I think we'll get to that question. I mm. I have feelings. I have feelings about this. I definitely uh, have some feelings about it as well, but I feel like, yeah, I won't spoil my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to them, but um, yeah. <laughs> we will. We will get to all of the thoughts. But Joel, it's it's been a while. Uh, last time we had you on, we discussed the very first Discworld book, The Color of Magic. Absolutely. Yep. Have you read any more Pratchett since then? No, no, I've saved myself. Yeah, no, I uh, I remember talking to you guys after the uh, after the podcast and I said, all right, well... I'm probably going to read more Pratchett, but maybe I'll save it for the next episode. And I thought it was going to be the sequel, but you threw a curveball at me. Yes. Yeah, we like to keep things mixed up. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, um, you, you got me on my first love, uh, Sword and Sorcery, and now you've, you've got me on science fiction. So, yeah. We, yeah. Knew, we knew how to hook you in. <laughs> We've hooked a few readers in as well. Um, have you read any Stephen? Ba- this is a question that'll come up as several yeah. listeners asked us this as well. But have you read any Stephen Baxter? Yes, yeah, I did. I just it was mostly his short stories, and I remember reading The Raft. I think it was a long, a long while ago. Then like skimming a lot of the the book series. But I love his take on aliens, so that was like my big thing on Baxter. It's it's funny. Like I sort of skirt hard sci-fi, and I go to the weird alien section in uh, in that <laughs> subgenre. <laughs> Does that mean you liked the fourth Indiana Jones? Uh, which one? I don't. I didn't or know there was, was, was a the third one. The the one that's set in the fifties. No, I have no, no idea what no you're talking fourth about. Indiana yeah. Jones film. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about, Liz. It doesn't exist. Yes, it's yeah. just a yeah. Weird. <laughs> Sorry, that does sound like we're gaslighting you. We're actually we're just we really hate the film. I think. Is the, is the I think answer. we just really hate the film. Yeah. Which is a bad use of aliens, and that's hard to do a bad use of aliens. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, it just felt weird. At the time that it was made, to be making a film with crystal skulls as well. <laughs> like, that's such a 1950s, 1960s, maybe 1970s thing. Was um, it sponsored although... by the vodka brand or like? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Um, I think they were, they missed that boat of the weird love of the retro 80s that we have now from like the Marvel universe and, and stuff like that. And they, they went a bit too far back, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they should have waited till the Wonder Woman that we're waiting for comes yeah. out. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, we don't know when it's going to come out right now. Just... Yeah, it feels like it's been coming out for five years, but... Yeah. Yeah, it feels, yeah, it feels the... like it's going to take longer than the 80s were for it to <laughs> arrive. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just very excited to talk about this book. So, um... Oh, yeah, I am too. I don't want to blow the gaff too early, but mm. I was really into this. And um, yeah, I really want to talk about it. So, And it's really long, so I, we should probably get into it. Shall we get into it? Yeah, it contains multitudes. So it does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, get ready, get ready, Joel. Strap yourself in. There's going to yeah, be more. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot what this is like. All right, let's let's, okay. let's go. Uh, Maybe long let's... enough to forget, and then, <laughs> then we'll be back in. Yeah. Let's uh, let's begin as we do with a reading of the blurb. 1917, the Western Front. Private Percy Blakeney wakes up. He is lying on fresh spring grass. He can hear birdsong and the wind in the leaves and the trees. Where have the mud, blood, and blasted landscape of no man's land gone? 2015, Madison, Wisconsin. Cop Monica Jansen is exploring the burned-out home of a reclusive, some say mad, others dangerous, scientist, when she finds a curious gadget. A box containing some wiring, a three-way switch, and a... potato. It is the prototype of an invention that will change the way mankind views its world forever. And that's an understatement, if ever there is one. It's a blurb that doesn't really say anything about the no. book, does yeah. it? <laughs> Weird thing, mine says 1916, not, not 1917. Oh. What about yours, Joel? Yeah, 1916 on the Kindle, and I'm assuming that's a newer edition. So. Who is yeah. wrong? Oh, well, I mean, look, I'm okay. I'm happy to be wrong. I mean, they're both years in the First World War. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, now that 1917 yeah. definitely won because of the movie, which is probably a saving grace of lots of people doing history exams. That is true. Well, yes. yeah. yeah. And film studies, probably. Yeah. I, I mean, look, if there's any subject outside of studying a book where you can go, oh, I'll just watch the film, it's got to be World War One or World War Two, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but you could really spend a lot more time watching all of the films because they have they've made like every year in the Oscars at least one of the best picture nominations is a war film. You you'd spend more time watching the films than reading a book. You spend more time watching the films than being in the actual. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably tr- well, no, I don't think that's true. No, it has to be literally true. If you put films. all of the films back to back, they probably run for longer than the war. I reckon they would. Really, every single one. Yeah, I don't I know. That seems like a lot. That's well, a lot. Well, of I mean, since 1917, are we including Russian cinema? Like one day, yes, all cinema, all cinema. All right, mm. all right. I think you win. Yeah. And they love making okay. three-hour biopics about the war. So that's true. You don't need many of those to make a full day. Anyway, yeah, you don't have to do it 24 hours a day for it to count. Like we expect you to still sleep in this hypothetical nightmare scenario. Yeah, please, listener. Somebody totaled this up. Spend the next year totaling these films up and <laughs> let me know. I'm very curious. Get on the IMDb. Do the maths. Yeah. It'll be great. Let's let's get back to a different hypothetical scenario. <laughs> let's get back to the book because this book did not start. I mean, I I, well, I guess I did read the blurb. I think before I read it, so I kind of expected what would happen at the start. But it is not quite, I don't know, this first chapter does what the blurb starts off talking about. We've got to talk about the real start of the book, which is the picture of the of the stepper with no explanation. Because oh, yeah. it just plunges you straight in and you're like, what is this diagram? So I, I thought that was a really good way to start, actually, because you it raises a lot of questions and it's not a conventional way to start a Terry Pratchett book. Yeah, it's a cool diagram too. It reminded me of uh, the cover of 
the They Might Be Giants album Mink Car, hmm. which is this sort of little exploded diagram of uh, like a model kit. Um, but yeah, and it, but <laughs> love how it doesn't come with any of the accompanying notes, so you don't know. No, any that's of the parts true. Are. We we don't know which part goes in first. Did anyone have model kits growing up? Was anyone enthusiastic? Um, no, but it reminded me of like because. I was in high school around the era that a bunch of people were building, you know, those potato cannons. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that made me think a lot of this because people did meticulously pass around the way you made it and it did involve a potato and everything, and I was just wondering yeah. if that was part of it or if it's always because kids are involved in science kits, like making crystal radios like they mentioned in the book. That That's true, yeah. Now, this brought me back to the old, you know, Spitfire models that I used to get in the assembly, and so that was a nice... Throwback again, World War Two. Um, yeah. War would one. you have built a good stepper? Do you think? Like, would you have been uh, one of the people who did a good one, or would you have been one of the ones crying and wandering around and having to be rescued by Joshua? I definitely would have built a, a very um, competently looking stepper. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you just uh, you just don't look inside. That's all. Yeah. So probably crying. Yeah. Hmm. I, I don't. I don't think I would have. I wouldn't have finished one. I would have been too nervous. I think. I would have tried building one, and I'd be like, "Oh, but I don't know." But I, mean, I don't know. It tells yeah. you what it does, yep. so maybe I would have just built one and thrown the switch. I don't know. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. So it's nineteen sixteen or seventeen. Yes. <laughs> just to put that question to bed, the correct year is nineteen seventeen. Later in the book, it said that Private Blackney went missing after the Battle of Vimy Ridge, which occurred in April nineteen seventeen. And uh, Percy Blackney, I, I realise they do specify the pronunciation of his name later in the book, so I pronounced it wrong in the blurb. But mm. yeah, this guy, Percy Blackney, is struck by a shell and he wakes up in this other world, a weird other world where there's no people and there's no war, which is nice, but he's a bit confused. And, you know, he's a he's a soldier from World War One. He's He's not well versed in the idea of parallel universes, so he doesn't know. Yeah, and I was very impressed by the way it was written because in five pages we have we get all of Private Percy stuff. We care about him. We find out that he was in World War One. We find out that he's traveled to an alternate universe. We find out that like where he was in the war and that he'd been injured previously and had a different post. Mm. And also, like in the final two pages, just someone's born casually. Why not? Like, it's just, but it doesn't feel right. It's a right. of a first chapter, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Like it really just gets into it. Yeah, I really liked it. It just throws you straight in, and you're invested immediately. And I was like, "Excellent! All right, I'm yeah, I'm here." And I, I don't know about you. I felt this first chapter felt very Pratchetty. Yeah, yeah. Like from the second paragraph, Percy feels very Terry Pratchett to me. Yeah, like as a character, yeah. the way he interacts with the world, the way he speaks, the way he thinks about mm. how he got there, like that was very Pratchetty to me. Yeah. And I really enjoyed the alien. Well, they're not aliens, are they? The the weird creatures, the fellows, the, fe- the fellows, <laughs> the boys. <laughs> or as he later calls them the Russians. The Russians, yeah. Which is r- ridiculous, but great. They they reminded me, if you've read his Stark Materials, of the mm. I'm going to pronounce their name wrong. The Malefola, yeah, who yep. are the sort of elephant people in uh, the third book, the Amber Spyglass, just because they were big and friendly and weird. And I like that he introduces himself by saying Parley Buffoon Say, because that is just <laughs> very funny because he is the buffoon saying a thing, but it does sound like the French thing. I assume the conversation about whether something feels pressured or not is probably going to be repeated quite a bit. 
But mm. yeah, I think when we when I started it and I opened, I saw the potato. I was like, well, I'm reading a Pratchett book. Um, <laughs> and then you know, it it was a very Pratchett opening. And then things get a little bit more murky in the middle. But yeah, the the opening contrast between the war and the and just you know him being obviously shell shocked was was really good opening. But the thing is, like, if you'd handed me this book without like with a white cover with none of the authors yeah. on it and said. One of the authors is someone you haven't read before, and the other one is someone you're a fan of. Who do you think they are? I would have been yeah. like, all right, Jasper Ford. Interesting. Mm, yeah, yeah, okay. I can see that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Especially because yep. of the potato yeah. diagram at the beginning. Mm. And the fact that it's like set in the present day, which is not something Pratchett has done very often. Yeah, fact. that was going to be my question. I was like, is this a, yeah, is this unusual for him? Yeah, well, in fact, and it's not even set in the present day. Like, it's set not in really. the future. Yeah. Which is something he's... I mean, his first couple of novels are set in the very, very far future, like thousands and thousands of years in the future. So he can just imagine it however he wants, basically. Hmm. And he's written a couple of historical novels. And the Johnny books and arguably the Truckers yeah. series are pretty much the only ones he's written contemporary in the sense of set around the time that it was written. So that's a bit of a... That would throw you off too, I think. And the chapters. The fact that it's got chapters. It's an adult book with chapters, whereas, you know, he has written books with chapters, but they're generally speaking for mm. younger readers, mm. which seems to be why he he puts it in. But just on the subject of it happening in the future, I, it took me a little while to figure out when everything was happening. There's Hopper Bunch, yeah. Because you go from World War One, where Percy ends up meeting these things, to sometime recently. And I sort of had to work it out because there is a year mentioned in the book somewhere, but I don't know where it is. The blurb was the main place I got a year for the modern day kind of stuff, which was 2015, which was three years after the book was published. Mm. But that's step day. And most of the action actually takes place 15 years after that. So in 2030. Yeah, it's set in the future. And uh, there's little hints of that throughout the book. But the technology level, until you get to the really crazy far out technology stuff, (laughs) is not significantly higher or different to what we know today. See, I thought that was really interesting. It took me a while to figure that out. Yeah, I I kind of liked how it moved around time. For this discussion, I guess we can't really go through the book in complete chronology because there's just so much. It felt to me like a book that was almost entirely world-building but in the most delightful Mm. of ways. Like, Mm. like I was very here for it being just all world-building because it's just very interesting pushing out against the boundaries of the concept, but basically every new chapter like every few chapters you meet a new character or you have a self-contained story or something and if we went through all of it i think um we'd be here for possibly longer than those war movies (laughs) yeah i think so (laughs) i did like that all of those little flashbacks to various points between step day and the sort of present of the story introduce new characters who then do come back later on in the main story, even if in very minor ways. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, it was great. And I, I think maybe there's one or two who don't, who I assume will will turn up in more significant roles in maybe some of the later books. I'm not sure. Yeah, this is one of those books that you feel like everything is mapped out on little pieces of paper connected by red string on a wall. Like <laughs> nothing is forgotten and nothing is unintentional. And presumably not just this book, but like the whole series mm. of five. Well, because this is just setting up a series, really. It could stand alone, but it does feel like it's a lot of groundwork for something bigger yeah. to come. It's interesting. I think looking at it like a like a series, I, w- I went and like did some background checks. So I cheated a bit. And uh, it was curious. I think Pratchett himself said that they designed the series to be a sequel after a sequel. So it's it's sort of explaining the book that came before rather than it being sort of a 
you know, um, a thing pays off later on. And I don't know how true that is in terms of the actual reading of it, but it's an interesting idea to think that, you know, the next book is the one that explains the one that came previously. It's kind of a mm. Diana Wynne Jones thing as well. Mm. Yeah, that's a good that's a good comparison, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. And this is a very Diana Wynne Jones book, as um one of our commenters pointed out, but it was something I kept coming back to throughout, is that it does feel very Diana Wynne Jonesy. Mm-hmm. Who's someone we've mentioned a lot on this pod. I think at some point we're going to have to do a like a spin-off episode just about her work. Oh, I'm very keen for that. That'll be great. Yeah. Mm. Okay, we'll do it. But quick rundown of the plot? Yeah, maybe maybe that's a good way to handle this one. So, in the past, Percy Blakeney finds himself in this other world, meets some weird local creatures who are not human beings. He kind of describes them as like fat monkey bear creatures. But he thinks of them as humans still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He thinks they're Russians. Russians. Uh, and makes yeah. friends with them by singing to them because they're able to mimic his singing back to him. But then like about a, a century later, a 15-year-old girl named Maria Valiente, uh, who lives in Madison, Wisconsin, also finds herself in that same other world, or at least another world. It's not actually explicitly said if it's mm. the same one or not. And is pregnant, and she appears there just as she's giving birth. He's born, she disappears back to the regular Earth, and he's left there, newly born, just for a moment, the only sentient creature in this entire universe of a parallel world. And then she comes back and gets him and they both go home. And as we find out later in the book, as the character finds out much later in the book, Mm. she dies soon after from complications and he goes into an orphanage, which he refers to as just the home. Which is where she was growing up as well. That's right. She got sent there, uh, but it was taken over by a bunch of sort of outcast nuns who are very Pratchetty characters. Mm. Uh, just every single time you find... I just wanted to meet more of the nuns. Every time we found out more about one of them, I was like, yes, these are the and best nuns They do the get world. brought up a bunch too. So, yeah. yeah. The one with the meatloaf poster. <laughs> and the motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that happens in that first chapter is on another world some long time ago, not specified exactly when, a giant collection of microbes living in an inland sea in North America awakens to sentience and is also the only sentient mind on its entire world and entire universe. Mm. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff happens. Even that's just all chapter one. This mm. book has fifty two chapters. <laughs> like that's crazy. But then we sort of skip to what is the present of the novel, which is twenty thirty, where everything has changed because as we find out through flashbacks, fifteen years previously in two thousand and fifteen. Someone anonymously releases the plans for this device, which becomes known as a stepper, onto the internet. And a bunch of kids in particular all build them. And it's just a little box with a little three-way switch on top and a potato inside it that's hooked up to the electronics. And when you switch the switch, which is labeled off and then like in one direction east and in the other direction west, you travel from the original Earth, which becomes known as Datum Earth, I was hoping they'd come up with another phrase for it because I find datum earth a bit of a, a mouthful to say because mm. it's such an odd word. We don't really use the the singular of data. <laughs> like, that's not really how that word's used. But anyway, you move from that one step in whichever direction you've chosen to another earth and not just another earth, but another entire universe with moon and planets and everything else. And there's lots of them and you can keep stepping and keep going in different directions further and further away from the original. As in different directions, as in either east, east or, or west. west. They don't or tell west, us what yeah. happens, like why there isn't a north or a south. Well, I think the idea is that there's just one continuum of, of worlds. Yeah. But the reason there's directions is that you have to be able to go out and go back again. But would that just be time then? Like, would you then, if you went sideways into one, then you went 
north or south, would that be traveling through time? I think in one of the references, it was like they're not specifically referencing a direction. It was just the way that it helps people arbitrary. think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just to say, like, we've got to think about this as some kind of direction. Mm. Let's put some direction labels we're familiar with on them. Like mm. there's a cement ceiling on travel and there is just direct. Okay. Yeah. Because the theory, and this is where it gets really interesting for me, because this is such a, a, several listeners asked about how we thought it compared to other depictions of parallel universes. And for me, it's, it's totally different to all of them, because the whole thing about it is that all these Earths are similar but different. But the main thing that's different is there are no, no people, people in any yeah. of them. They're all empty of human life. Usually the joy is like the slight differences in history and that kind of thing. And I, yes. I would have... If I was setting out to write this book, I'd be like, what am I going to possibly put in this Like, that will be interesting? Yeah, how do you fill it up? Yeah. yeah. And they yeah. delivered in spades. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that means it sidesteps the cliche sidesteps of parallel very universe good. stories. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> no, Oof. I didn't even mean that one. Uh, but there's that line fairly early on where there's like somebody talking about how the long earth works on television mm. in universe and is saying, yeah, and Adolf Hitler has not been allowed to win his war in any yeah, of these worlds. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, good. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, but it is weird. It's strange. And it is a very interesting exploration of, like, what if humans were given this information and ability suddenly, what would they do with it? And I feel like it does actually do a really thorough and authentic exploration of that without feeling forced or cramped at any point. Yeah, and I think it was really smart for them to do it out of order you know it's mm. not told linearly we have chapters of what the main characters are getting up to in the present but then we flash back to things like step day a few times or mm. just after step day or five years after or 10 years after and we see this sort of gradual evolution and if anything i think the only thing that i found disappointing about that is how american centric it was mm. Mm. like they've yeah. chosen to set the novel like the main location that's significant is Madison, Wisconsin, where the main character is from, where the guy who invented the stepper box is from. And so it becomes this kind of central idea of this is where stepping started, even though it's obviously spread over the world very quickly. But, you know, you never there's little bits of what happens in other countries, but not a lot. I, I assume there's something that will get explored more in some of the later books. Well, they said in the acknowledgments why they chose Wisconsin yeah. as mm. as the location because yeah. they were at the North American Discworld Convention um, mm. and they yeah. wanted to do a lot of research. Um, but I am disappointed because, like as you say, a lot of stories like this are very American centric. Um, I did see a, a tweet that made me laugh um, because of you know the current apocalypse and everything, where they say mm-hmm. you're watching. When you watch a zombie movie and it's just Americans all killing each other and society has crumbled and they never mention what other countries are doing, it's because other countries have like recovered and are just going on with normal life. <laughs> well, interestingly, this book like suggests almost the opposite. Like they specifically talk about how America deals with this quite well, mm. but other countries don't, and and they're quite like it's you very down it. on the United Kingdom. Yeah, they, to England it. gets yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like there's a line where they say only three countries tried to ban stepping and it was Iran, Burma, and the United <laughs> Kingdom. Australia gets a strangely prominent role in this yeah. film. Yeah. I've yep. film, but yeah, it's, it featured quite a lot. And what do you think? Like, I thought it was good, but also interesting how they handled it. Oh, the mm. depiction of Australia, you mean? They had a section where Indigenous Australians are talking yeah. about how they can step sideways and with the pros and cons of that. Um, they have their own chapter dedicated to that idea in the book they said they were the largest mm. what is it the uh, majority of people that went 
Um, yeah, like a higher of them than yeah. any other ethnic group mm. left which, and never came back. Yeah, which sort of ended at the end of a chapter as well. So it sort of was this big reveal, and then you're you're, you're left wondering. Mm. And that yeah, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I again, you know, it's kind of like when we were reading the last continent. I would love to get an Aboriginal perspective on that because mm. I can sort of see pros and cons of that, both as a decision, but also as like a depiction of what Aboriginal people might do. Mm. Or think, yeah. Yeah. But looking at the overall plot, the way that it advances, we meet Joshua, who's now sort of older, and he is a natural stepper. He can move without the box, um, and he's been recruited for several things in the past. He ran into some trouble with the government over an incident, and he's been offered the chance to have that incident wiped clean if you'll go on this other mission with Lobsang, who is a who claims to be a reincarnated <laughs> Tibetan motorcycle repairman, but is yes. pretty much... Just AI revealing itself. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And it very I mean, it's a very clever sequence where he kind of explains that this is how he got around the difficulty of claiming that he was as good as a human being yeah. by saying he was actually a human being. And originally he presents himself as a vending machine, as you would, I guess, um, and excretes a drink, which is <laughs> sure a strong image. Um, Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Yeah. But they um, decide to go on a journey to find the end of the long earth, isn't it? Isn't that the classic thing? Like... Well, he kind of just says, like, he wants to explore it and find out what, what more about it and how it works. He's a bit circumspect about it in the beginning, I think. Yeah, but they got, they basically, long story short, they are set off on this journey and much of the book of their story is them going and exploring different lands along the way, kind of like the Stargate team mixed mm. with the Prometheus team, but with less incidents um, and just kind of a nice odd couple vibe. It's also got some Hitchhiker's Guide feels to it as well. Yeah, yeah. And like an older example, probably like a little Jules Verne. I couldn't uh, escape mm. that in the book. Well, there's a direct reference yeah. um, when they meet Sally towards the end yeah. of the book, and she <laughs> refers to one of them as Rober. And you're <laughs> like, yeah, because yep. they do. They they make uh, an airship that, mm-hmm. uh, and it's like a zeppelin, but it's a big fancy one. It's huge, like the way that they describe. It. It's got multiple decks and all these yep. rooms and, a cat. and laser cannons. Yeah, and a cat's got a robot cat who's cool. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it, they managed to get that to travel through getting around the loopholes of how stepping works. And I thought that was really interesting, too, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of little nuances about how stepping between the Earths works mm-hmm. that felt to me, because normally I read Pratchett and I read, you know, his his fantasy work and I, it feels to me more like science fiction, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas this for, is science fiction, but in some ways felt to me a little bit more like fantasy because you've got these kind of, weird magic rules of how yeah, the world works that yeah. nobody understands why it's like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, the the whole iron can't travel between the things was interesting. Like, I wonder how they came up with that specifically because it seems like, like, I don't know how iron is made though. Is that why there's a whole thing called the Iron Age because it was a big breakthrough in human technology? Like does iron not exist naturally? Cause, like, well, being able to work it. It does exist naturally as an ore. And, mm. But does that mean you could put it, iron ore through? Or like, could you like take... No. Okay. No. Yeah. So yeah, yeah if they do go into it a bit. Then that would make sense. But, yeah. There's a whole chapter where they explain that as well, when they're talking about like iron in the blood and it needs to be contained within, you know, our yeah. molecules to go through. I had that down as a note. I'm like, what about iron in the blood? And then I had a whole <laughs> thing about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. thank you for reading my mind and my yep. nitpicky <laughs> questions ahead of time. 
I think that's partly they probably picked that because they knew they wanted the Long Earth to be a kind of explanation for a lot of folk tales. Mm. Mm. And iron is long, you know, associated with being a bane for fairy creatures. You know, the fae, the the she, the Tuatha yeah. Dedan, like they can't touch iron. They have a whole real mean thing about Stonehenge. It's like that's mean. Yeah, I. <laughs> what What do you mean? Like, the singing stones, yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Keep that's, them out. Yeah. You just bang them to make them unhappy with the sound. I'm like, that's just so mean. The trolls are nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, stone has a purpose, I suppose. That was the purpose, to traumatize the trolls. Yeah, Yeah, it's like one of those <laughs> things that, like a bug zapper or like the thing. That, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we don't know if Stonehenge was built for that. We only know that <laughs> this other circle of stones was built for that, which it seems like it was. Mm-hmm. The journey, though, that, that they go on, well, we discover these rules as they go, but there's mm. a lot of rules that they already know. But part of the impetus for this journey is that nobody understands why these rules mm. are the way they are. Yeah. And they're hoping to resolve some of that mystery. And, you know, it's a, it's a secret at the start that Joshua is a, you know, a natural stepper, mm. that he doesn't need the box to do it. But it's also heavily implied early on. Well, I thought it was implied early on, so it wasn't that much of a surprise to me when they kind of more or less say Mm. it out loud later on that all humans are natural steppers, or most of them. It's just that most of them need the box to get their mind Mm -hmm. into the right frame to do it. This is the thing about the brain potential not being unlocked, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and then there's that, uh, because there's like one-fifth who can just do it pretty naturally. They don't need the box, and they don't feel ill when they do it. And then most everyone else can do it with a box, but it makes them feel like they, they get one of the big things is when you step across, you feel nauseous for like 10 to 15 minutes and you, you know, throw up and it's gross. And then there's like about a, was it five, one in five, or maybe it was more like 10%, but there's another significant proportion of people that can't stop who yeah. you just can't do it. Although as you find out right at the end of the book, and I thought this was interesting that we this was a detail that was left right until the end. They can you do can it. Like they can be taken hand. across yeah. by someone else. They just get really sick. So it's not that they can't travel. It's just they can't travel on their own, which I thought was like kind of an, in, an important point. <laughs> yeah. And, and, seemed and weird, weird to leave out until the yeah, end. Yeah, I because agree. Because do they stay yeah. sick if they're not in their own world? Or could you like, because the whole thing is that people leave their phobic, as they yeah. call them, kids behind as they explore new worlds. Oh, that'd be so sad and But angry. if it's just they oh. get really sick and need like an EpiPen or something when they land, like surely <laughs> you do do it once. Yeah. And then... Is it like a coma kind of sick or is it just like, you know, a week of being sick? Because if it's a week of being sick, then I have no sympathy for the family that left their son behind. It's just... Well, I guess they yeah. did like a hundred thousand steps. steps. So you'd have to... Oh yeah, be, that would ruin you. Yeah. Be sick for like... Slow you down. That much time. So. That's true, yeah. Yeah, I did like, because early on I was really confused about why anyone felt the need to go that far from mm. the original Earth. But as the book goes on and it and mm. these flashbacks sort of fill in more information, and I was like making notes, I mean, you've seen some of my notes which are a bit ridiculous, but I was making some other notes. They explain that the Earth is in the interglacial zone, so mm. the, the original Earth and the ones close to it are all in a sort of band of Earths that are very similar. And they sort of, you know, there's these groupings of Earths that are, are broadly similar to each other. But the Earth is an interglacial one, so it's had some ice ages, but those ice ages have left it kind of fertile after they've gone, so now it's nice. And then there's the ice belt they refer to, which is like, I think it's like, well, like it's like something like 100,000 mm. Earths or something. 
um, where well, it's not it's not that many actually. It's fewer than that. It's like twenty thousand, but there's about that many Earths going west where it's all ice age. And there's no, you know, you can't grow anything and the animals are all weird. And then you get past that and there's the mine belt, which is there's not much vegetation. There's lots of mineral resources, but not much life. And then once you get past that, which is where you get to the hundred thousands. Yeah, the corn belt where the conditions are really perfect for farming and and plants and animals to thrive. Yeah, so they kind of eventually explain that. I'm like, oh, that's why you got to go so far. And the worlds are kind of set up to be that kind of, you know, American pioneer going Mm. into the West. And I and I had this feeling when I was reading it, and there's the references to this all the time. You you see David um, Daniel Boone rather, um, and Mm. I got that feeling of you know old westerns that I grew up with of the lack of irons. Then you you you, sort of contrivance to to make these you know long walking hikes across wilderness to get that sort of aesthetic across and yeah yeah because they had that story of the family that was traveling that left their kid behind Mm. and that was the one that with that aesthetic the most yeah the pioneer aesthetic yeah i think what this book did really well um in its world building was also showing different ways that different types of people would handle this new power or ability because Mm. there were the people who wanted to regress to older times where women did the chores and Men mm. did the hunting and gathering and that kind of thing. They're the people who would have immediately tried to make a buck and you got that guy who tried to find the gold. Gold, gold. <laughs> Everyone's got gold now. It doesn't mean anything. Yep. And then there's the scientists or the big rich people like Lobsang works for essentially who want to answer the bigger questions and have the resources to do so. So you got to see things on a micro and a macro level of how humanity would handle such a thing. And then the resentfulness of the mm. aftermath of this new world as well. So it packs a lot in. Like, it's a compelling read in terms of the story alone. But as an exploration of how humans would handle this, I think it was very real. It was very positive Mm. as well. It uh, There was a sense of optimism, which Mm. reminded me of uh, the golden age of science fiction, much less than the current uh yeah. sort of bent towards science fiction whether that be dystopia or you know neil stevenson style and i'll mention him a lot i guess during this uh but there is that level of optimism and, and characters are generally more hopeful in in this book yeah i agree yeah it didn't feel grim like it wasn't like all. there's a yeah. horror waiting around every corner it was, <laughs> yeah it was kind of like stargate yeah. vibe yeah i did like the there wasn't a lot of military or, mm. or government sort of presence like they referenced but most of the characters like to operate independently and where they do sort of end up working with government or with large corporations they're very wary of it Mm. like they don't like it certainly most of the protagonists are like that anyway yeah yeah and there was even like that horrible slaughter scene and it wasn't actually like humans doing like a zombie movie on each other it was just animals that can sidestep finding themselves trapped in a confined Mm. space and just reacting in a natural way so because i was like oh it's gonna take a dark turn where humans are suddenly like going around trying to murder other colonies but it was not that at all and i was pleasantly surprised i was pleasantly surprised by the murder (laughs) (laughs) we never got to Uh, the chapter where they like teleported into a aztec style civilization mm. where apes were running around sacrificing hearts or anything like we never got to that extent no it was always sort no. of benign yeah can we talk about the mon- the monkey motif throughout this which um I yeah think a bit of a noob being like maybe it's explained in the subsequent books but there is like a strong monkey motif like from 
the trolls, like looking kind of monkeyish. Yeah. Um, is that just also, Neanderthal, like sort of Homo sapien evolutionary scale thought process here? I, That's what I, I agree assume. With that, but there's also like Joshua's mother, and they don't explain his father has that monkey bracelet that is precious yes. to her, and the only thing she yes. got from her mother. That's a good point. Um, and it's kind of just like a thing throughout. And I was wondering, like, is it? Yeah, like you're saying, evolution because they have that whole section about evolution mm. being that we can't find fossils of certain links in the chain that we feel like we should be. And the book's explanation is because those people could step and they stepped away from Datum Earth and that's why there is so little fossil evidence of them. So mm, I, I found that bit a bit fuzzy. Like I wasn't sure if they were suggesting all of the stepping kind of intelligent life forms evolved on the main Earth mm. and then left or if they were saying we can't figure out how all these other beings evolved on the other earths because as soon as they could step they left so they don't leave any trace in the fossil record so i was a bit fuzzy on that but i do think that yeah most of them are ape-like in Mm. some way because they're supposed to have a common ancestor with humans can i just get they've come from a similar line into my most um interpretation mode for this because in that (laughs) chapter actually it opened up a lot of things because they had that character nelson um Mm. who was sort of had one foot in religion and one foot in science. And I felt like that kind of summed up the book a bit because at the end of it, I was like, hang on. So the main character is called Joshua and he has got a kind of chosen one vibe, Mm -hmm. right? Like he is the one who was born for a specific thing. Um, Joshua. He's very Campbellian in his sort of, you know, he's got the weird origin and et cetera, et cetera. All right. So let me get into my like full, full thing. Um, Joshua is actually like a modern version of Yeshua, which is Mm -hmm. another name for Jesus. Um, his mother is named Maria, and we don't know who the father is. I assume that's going to be a big reveal later, or it's a virgin birth. And it's just kind of real Bible-y Jesus things. Yeah, I got put it a certain way. I got that exact vibe, yeah. Yeah, because he's literally yeah. called Joshua. His mother yep. is Maria, and I was like, surely that's intentional. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, look, one thing I, I will say, I did go back and read the short story, which was Terry Pratchett's original right, okay. version of this, yeah. which he wrote in 1986, like before the Discworld took off. He thought this would be his big series. Mm. He thought this was going to be the books he was going to write that was going to be this whole thing. Until The Color and then of Magic. The Color yeah. of Magic got real popular. So he's like, well, I'll write the one that I know is mm. already popular. So he came up with a lot of this stuff. And back in that, like one of the characters is... Is called Joshua Valiente. It's got the same name. Um, the other one of the other main characters, his last name is Lindsay, although he's quite different. And the, the characters, I should say, in that short story are different, but a lot of the ideas are already there. So you're right, like it does have that feel to it. But I, I wonder if that's something that's been added in because a lot of the ideas that are in the novel were already there in the short story, including things like the gap and um, the high megas. I mean, that's what the story's called. It's called the high megas. And a lot of that stuff is already in place even when he originally came up with the idea like long, long before he wrote this book. Yeah, I think it was the name, I think, that really tipped me off um, like you, Liz, I guess. Uh, When, like Joshua, it's that whole dual name of God thing going on Mm. in the name. Um, But specifically, I don't know how common Joshua is as an American name. Do we know? Is that... that Well, they're Catholics. Yeah. uh, And they were in a home for Catholic kids. So I assume that those sorts of biblical names are pretty common yeah. for them, at least. It made sense in that score. But is a me. book that is yep. about science and religion. Like, he literally grows up in a home, like yes. you said, like a Catholic home yep. with nuns and everything, but it is a very science book. Like, it talks about how it works and all of that kind of thing. So, like, I, I feel like it's intentional, even if he was called Joshua in the... Like, is his mm. mother mentioned in the short story? Cause no. 
that could have been added in later. It might not have been intentional mm-hmm. in the short story, but yeah, Maria, in the short yeah, story, the yeah. the Joshua style character is actually Larry Lindsay, and Joshua Valiente in the short story is like a different character. And so Although switching them around could there. fit in with that theory as well. Mm. So yeah, it's evolution, religion, all of those things coming together. And there's even that, um, and this might, this is a bit of a stretch, is that whole thing where they flash back to the war about people trying to protect themselves with, or loved ones trying to protect them with the Bible in the pocket, like the classic yeah. one. But yep. um, it's got a gunmetal cover and one of the sergeants is yelling at someone else being like, you know, if you get shot in that, it will shoot the gunmetal right into you and hurt you more. So like, yeah. it's actually more dangerous mm. to hold that close to your heart. And I was like, is that real? And I was just wondering yeah, if that is part of the overall thing. We have a few references in the book that's, you know, biblical or sort of Christian imagery. Like there was a line that made me chuckle, which was the uh, a hero leading them to safety like Moses, only he was called Joshua, not Moses. And <laughs> if people don't know, Joshua was the sort of right hand man to, to Moses in the Torah. So again, you have all these sort of illusions. So I didn't know if it was just sort of a, a nod or a wink or whether it was more than that. I feel like it's a nod. It's not like, let's make this like a parable or a retelling yeah, or something. No, I, but so, yeah. I feel like it's an intentional thread. Mm. Yeah. I think Joshua does turn out to be very central and for particular, specific, you know, unique reasons. But I don't think he's really a, a Christ figure. Like he stands figure, aside. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell because there's four more books of this and it's not sure where it's going. Mm. I mean, well, it's sure where it's going. I'm not sure where it's going. But, I mean, the religious themes come through in the character of Lobsang Mm. as well, who uses the whole idea of reincarnation as the basis for his argument Mm. that he should be treated like a human being because, you know, he says he he is one. But also he tries to live by Buddhist (laughs) tenets, you know. And the most religious, non-religious group are the, what, the comic atheists, the ones yeah. who get slaughtered. Like, they actually yeah. like, have oh, a church yeah. for their atheism yep. and that kind of thing, and that whole bit felt very Terry Pratchett as well. But, mm. yeah, uh, I don't yeah. feel like it's pushing in any one direction of religion, but I do feel like the religion versus science, uh, well, not versus, like, religion and science coexisting yeah. is a thread. I don't think it was a conflict in the book. Like, it wasn't set up as a conflict. Mm. It never uh, never became one. But, like, even Lobb saying he has plenty of sort of illusions of grandeur. You have the whole, um, you know, omnipotence that gets brought up so <laughs> many times with him. And, yeah, it, curious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel we should talk a bit more about the plot because we do like to try and make sure someone who hasn't read the book can follow what we're talking about, at least vaguely. This is a hell of a one to do that for, yeah. Yeah. I know because there's so much in it and it's told all, like a, like we said, yeah. out of sequence. But the plot is pretty basic, to be honest. It's world building that's complex. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, the yeah. plot is, oh, well, you can step sideways into different alternative Earths and how do different people handle it. Our protagonists are exploring the big questions of this. And everyone else is just filling in the gaps about how society's dealing with it. Mm. That's kind of the yeah. plot. Like they go on this big journey. He finds a woman who. Um, should we should we talk about Sally, or do we get to Sally later? I think. Well, I think we can talk about Sally. We're not really going to try and go through this in order. Mm. <laughs> I feel for once. So Joshua and Lobsang are on their journey. They come across a young woman who turns out to be Sally, um, who is the daughter of the man who originally. Mm put the diagram on the internet that started everyone stepping that caused step day and it turns out that she is from a family of natural steppers her dad was not able to do it without the box and he got slowly more reclusive after her mother died and it was just like what was his motivation like i found it difficult like was it that he felt that everyone should have the information 
Yeah, because he was working for the Black Corporation, which is a, a big multinational corporation that owns TransEarth, which is the company that Lobsang Part owns and which has paid for all of their amazing technology that they build into their Zeppelin and go off traveling across the worlds in. And he could see what was going to happen is that as he developed this box that could allow people to step, um, he was doing it on his own, not for the Black Corporation, but he could see that the Black Corporation would get there and get their hands on it, and he didn't want that to happen, so he released it to the public instead, hmm. made sure it got out to everyone, and then no one could own it because it had an anonymous author and everybody had access to the information. Yeah. And he'd also been doing all these weird experiments of figuring out how it would work and how he could get other people to go across and how he could make a thing. Because, it, yeah, it is it is pretty much said, spelt out in the book that everyone... You know, the box doesn't do the stepping, the person does the stepping, but the box makes it possible for them. Mm. Yeah. Um, which is a contrast to the original short story where they, they don't have a box, they have a belt, and the belt seems integral, like you you have to have it. But it's important because it has safety features. Like the, There's stuff missing from the short story that they've integrated into here. Like in the short story, there's a lot of questions that are not answered, but there's there's lots of stuff in there. But anyway, well, There's more yeah, fodder so- for a series if it's... um inherent in humans rather than just technology allowing it because then you can go back further um there's more questions you can probe into like there's a lot more there's a lot more depth if it's not just technology allowing them to do that yeah have people step Mm. before and then you know where have they gone etc etc it just sort of touched on in this book about how this um sally takes them to um, what's it called again? Like Happy Landings? Happy, happy Landings. landings. Yeah. And That's what she calls it's it. It's funny yeah. because throughout the book, we've heard of people stepping, they're like, oh, that place was full of rain, so we'll, um, we'll step one more. And it turns out this is the place that's constantly raining, and it's actually just almost a kind of utopia where everyone looks after each other. And it's easy to live there because they don't have to work as hard to farm for food. Yeah, a strange utopia, yeah. 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 And that, it's sort of a thing that comes back, you know, the, this idea that, if you know agriculture is required if you only have one world because once your population reaches a kind of certain size you have to get more serious about food production mm. in a smaller area yeah. or you can't feed everybody but once you can spread out to the long earth and you can have a very small number of people living on an entire planet we don't even need to farm like there's plenty of food to sustain you just growing wild mm. and that's particularly true of the world where happy landings is and that's like really far off into the high megas to use the phrase from the original story (laughs) it's at about 1.4 million steps removed from earth um and yeah and it's and the other significant thing about it is that it is a community that's not just humans it's humans and trolls living side by side and it's by around this time in the book we've learned that trolls is the name that um people use to refer to the weird monkey ape-like creatures that private percy meets the russians accidentally steps yeah the so-called russians yeah and like it's a it's a good reminder that like back in those days the people had never gone overseas they didn't have television Mm. they Mm. didn't have photographs from anywhere else and if you weren't very educated there's no reason for them not to believe that human beings in other parts of the world look very very different to you and i was like that's true i was it was it was curious. I was reading uh the I was on a World War Two bend, which is I recommend that to no one because that's a misery <laughs> hole and a half. But um, there was an interesting thing about Russians from a German perspective, or rather mm. Nazi propaganda perspective, where they depicted them as you know subhuman sort of you know ape like bear like creatures. And I kind of got that vibe from his uh, Percy's description of it as well, where it's yeah. sort of like removing them because they're the other you know they're the enemy. So. 
But he would have had yeah. so much propaganda yeah. thrown at him as a soldier who had not left his small town, yeah, his small country. So yeah, and him deciding yeah. sort of not wanting to go back to that world just because you sort of understand why he wouldn't. Yeah, I like that he decides in the end, like what is it, forty years later, to go back and see how the wars got on. See how his chaps are doing. Yeah. And he immediately gets mown down and dies. So, by a tractor. He gets yeah. hit by a tractor. That is not yeah. a good way to go. Hit by iron. Like, that yeah. is... Oh. And yeah. that's a message in that. It's like maybe if you found something good, you should stay there. But I don't know if that's intentional or if it's just for the... Because like, it's good because Lobsang pieces together all these stories that show you how this has worked across recent history. And his is one of them. And it's weird because like, when he mentions Percy, I was like, oh, I know that guy. I'm like, wait, no. It's all the same book. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well it was so long ago. <laughs> you know, once you get back to him uh in that later chapter, you're like, Oh, I wondered if this was gonna be significant in some way. It always was, pretty um, much. Like it all like yeah. and the raining one, which is just such a throw throwaway thing, like, oh we won't go because yeah. it's raining, it reminds me of that Simpsons episode where when he presses the toaster every time, um he's in a different alternate universe. And I don't know mm. why this episode is stuck with me of all of them, but there's that one where everything is Everything is perfect. Like he's wealthy. He's got all. Like it's the classic eighties, nineties version of perfection, yeah, yeah. where you have lots of money and a big house and a very polite family. Um, and then he's like, "May I have a donut?" And they're like, "What is a donut?" And he's like, and he starts screaming and immediately runs yeah. for the toaster. And then suddenly it starts raining donuts, and they're like, "Oh, it's just it's raining again." So, yeah. Thank you for coming on that journey with me, where I described that scene that you all already <laughs> knew. But it, it kind of reminds me of that. Like they all were like, "Oh, it's raining, so we can't go here," and they missed out on a nice place. But is the self? Well, we don't filter. know. We don't know if they missed out on a nice place. Well, because um, yeah, it's sort of they self- don't explore it. Yeah, but there, there's also that kind of thing where like no one bad goes there, so it is kind of like in Harry Potter, where um, Muggles always remember they've got something they need to do when they're trying to enter the area where the Triwizard Tournament is. Yeah. So it might be just keeping oh, yeah. people out. It's it's no one bad, but also, you know, it, it makes references to um, disability and things like that as well. Like this yeah, is sort of a that, sort uh, of queasy territory. Yeah, I yeah. saw that. I was like, oh, no, you're not saying what I think you're saying. And I they stopped talking about it. I'm like, I think. And they stopped talking there. about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, I don't think they were. So, like, I don't think the they main were characters yeah. are sort of discussing it going, isn't it weird, though? Isn't it weird? There's yeah. no disabled people here. Yeah. Like, where is it? What, what, how does that work? And they're like, mm, yeah, that is weird. Uh, and they're, they're unsettled by it. And it's part of what makes them feel mm. like there's something off about that community. Yeah. Um, which I liked because it's an acknowledgement that in these stories, you so rarely see anyone who is disabled mm. doing anything. And, and the closest that kind of comes in the book is the way that people treat the, um, standalones is, or, or what they end up calling them. Yeah, it's a horrible phobics. way to call them because it's not what they are. Yeah. And that whole subplot where the Green family who go to what they eventually name this sort of town of Reboot, Reboot in this yeah. universe, which belongs to them, um, they leave their son behind. And the dad talks about how he can't quite believe, like in one of the early chapters, he talks about how he can't quite believe his wife has become someone who is willing to do that. Yeah. And then he goes along with it and does it as well. Mm. Although he insists on having a connection back to the original Datum Earth and making sure that he's looked after, which his wife is disapproving of. And I'm like... This is horrifying. Yeah, like, I don't. This yeah. this pushed some real buttons for me. Who's mm. had like some stuff like that, you know, in my family history, and I'm like, no, this is not okay. And I felt real sorry for Rod. I mean, where he goes is like awful, but you can sort of is understandable to a degree. Like they they laid the groundwork for how his story arc panned out very well. Yeah. So they they do meet Sally, who takes them to Happy Landings, 
and that, but she also refuses to tell them how she's managed to step so far because this is another thing is that Lobsang's invention of this special airship allows them to step very, very quickly mm. because, you know, you, you have to go one universe at a time, or most people do, mm. as we discover later on. Uh, and, you know, if you, particularly if you suffer from the nausea, like if you're one of most of the humans using a stepper box, that means you can't go that far very quickly. Um, they do sort of a few hundred steps a day, or normal people do. And then if you sort of condition yourself, like I think the Green family, when they're doing it, do about a thousand a day. And then there's the airship, which can do like one every second at a cru- sort of easy cruising speed, which is 40,000 a day, which gets them very far. Mm. And then they, but they find Sally out at like 1.4 million. And they're like, how the hell did you get this far so quickly? And she doesn't want to tell them about yeah, it. Yeah. And that interaction is very good yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, entice her onto the ship. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was great. And I also really like that. There was very much a feeling of, oh, are they going to be like a romance? Is this going to be a typical Mm. Pratchett, like two people get together just because they're the only two people Mm. and we're not going to really like it kind of thing. And then it doesn't happen. And you're like, oh, this is refreshing. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it was really good. And she's quite adamant about it. She's like, no, not interested. Because he does make that one comment about her legs at one point and then instantly regrets it. He's like, why did I say that? That was a dumb thing to say. And she's like, listen, mate. We might become friends, but that's all that's going to happen here. And you're like, okay, good, good, good. And nobody gets pissy about it or weird. But they find out weird things like that the trolls don't like to be around people. And this hooks back into, uh, or too many people, I should say. In fact, they, through experimentation, the people who live in Happy Landings have discovered that exactly 1,890 yeah. people <laughs> is the limit for them. And I'm like, I, that's nice. I like that there's a specific number for that. Mm. But if there's more than that number of humans in close proximity, it makes them feel weird. They don't like it. They leave. So they've spread their town out as it's had to get bigger, mm. as more people are there into sort of villages that are a few minutes away so that, you know, people are still close by, but there's not too many people in any one place to make the trolls uncomfortable. And this sort of links into things that yeah. Joshua has been saying since the very start of the book where he talks about the silence with a capital S, which was such a pratchety mm. way to put that, and how he prefers it that silence that he gets when he's on a world where there's nobody else. But it also seems to be a thing which is either natural to everyone or just natural steppers that other people can sense if there are other human minds in the same world as them. Mm. Like Sally certainly has a feel for it. It's not clear if everyone does, but they also talk about the idea that maybe everybody does, but the thing is that humans are born into a world where there's already millions or billions of other humans, so you kind of have evolved to deal with it. Yeah, there is no silence, yeah. Trolls and elves, because they can step and they've always been able to, they have evolved to live only with a few thousand other people and any more minds than that feels weird and gross and awful to them. And Joshua was Which, like born into a world where he was literally the only person there, so he's got that affinity as well. Yeah, he's got a bit of that. And I wondered about like whether that was a reference to the evolutionary cycle of these creatures, the elves and the trolls, where at the start where it's it's sort of alluding, and I don't know if we ever got a you know concrete resolution one way or another, um, whether they originated on Earth and then there were too many humans and then they stepped away, right? It was their evolutionary mechanism to sort of defense mechanism to step, but we didn't develop I, it. So yeah, I feel fairly strongly they're not from the data mm. Earth. But it's one of the reasons why they don't go there very often yeah. um, or stay very long. But they have visited, which is where the stories of trolls and elves and other supernatural creatures come from. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which I thought was was cool. And I thought that, you know, the little touches, like the thing about the iron and the, the stone circles and the, the fact that, you know, they, it matches up with the idea of the fairy ways and the other world in Celtic mythology, particularly, which Sally talks about because yeah. her grandfather on her mother's side was like a, a really strong natural stepper. Um, and who could, as she eventually reveals, uh, ha- like had the family knack mm-hmm. for finding the soft ways or the soft places, which are places where you can step through multiple worlds in one go and also which move you geographically. Because one of the other plot points is that when you step, you don't move in space. You only move into the equivalent place in the next world along. There's no mm. TARDIS. Yeah, which is where a lot of the problems on step day came from because kids were building a stepper box on the second floor bedroom of their house and flicking the switch and then falling to the ground because there was no house on the other world. Yeah, we'll come back to that um, because that's a big plot point. Mm. Yeah. So they're finding out all this stuff slowly. Sally's sort of slowly trusting them and revealing a bit more and they decide to keep going because one of the other things they've noticed and one of the big mysteries is that the trolls and also the elves who are another species of stepping hominids who are much smaller but very strong and very aggressive Aggressive, and they have this amazing there's a great sequence where they stop on a world because this is earlier in the book but josh was like sick of being on the ship all the time he wants to touch the earth so he says we've got to stop for an hour each day so i can go down on the ground and walk around and then he says can we stop for a whole day and check a place out because we never stop very long and we don't really get a good idea of what any of these places are like. We've been through millions of Earths and we haven't really seen much of any of them. And Lobsang stops him on a world <laughs> on purpose where he gets hunted by a pack of these elves who are riding on the back of these giant pigs. It was very uh, Princess Mononoke, <laughs> giant boars sort of thing. Was there 30 to 40 of them? or <laughs> Was there 30 what? to 40 no. of them? Oh, like... don't. <laughs> 30 to 50 <laughs> wild elves, yeah. Who had just left the um, yard. <laughs> but yeah, the way they're described when they're fighting, like they leap through the air and they step sideways and then step back. It reminded me of uh, Nightcrawler from the mm, X-Men. Yeah, that's and, a like, really when good When you see yeah. him, like in that second X-Men film, but also in some of the comics where they really sort of go to town on, well, if you could just disappear and reappear somewhere else, how would that affect the yeah. way that you fight people? And this is not quite that, but it's very similar. And yeah, I just thought that was really cool. It's a really good scene. Yeah, absolutely. But it also makes them terrifying. Yeah. And it also um, ties in with some of the problems back on, like, our Earth where people are using the stepping technology for assassinations and for terrorism. Um, and they just happened to that yeah. a few times. And so there's a police officer we haven't really talked about much. Um, oh, yeah, and she's one of my favorite yeah. characters. What's her first name? Like, I know her last name is Jansen. Monica. Monica Jansen. Monica Jansen. So she's, like, tapped yeah. into it all really well. Like, she's the one who comes up with the idea Spooky. of people yeah. sleeping in bunkers. Like, if you dig mm. out a bunker, it's hard to step into it because you'd have to dig a bunker in the equivalent next world before they can step into the same space in yours and they'd also have to know about it so that's very clever yeah and they talk about all the different um security measures that step up to try and step up um try and protect you from steppers coming into your house and they're all very ineffective so i kind of wanted to ask the two of you how would you keep steppers out of your house if you couldn't build a bunker i'd be okay actually where i live because i live in an apartment which is not on the ground floor (laughs) so unless (laughs) someone built a platform that was quite tall on an adjacent earth and you would have to know if it was there yeah. right because if you could step at any time you just go downstairs step over and like oh yeah no one's built a platform okay yeah <laughs> i mean because you wouldn't you couldn't bring a well i guess you could bring a wooden ladder yeah um, are we talking about infinite resources here liz like how, how much defensive budget do i have uh you have ten thousand dollars 
a town. Okay, that's not enough to build an apartment building then. Okay. Mm. Um, we can come enough. back to that. That's good. But yeah, I yeah. was like, how would I protect myself? I'm like, you just, I'd, it's like when you think about the house you live in now, you go, oh, well, if someone really wanted to come in, they could. They could, yeah. But there's no reason for them to. Yeah, like, exactly. You know. So it's the same kind of. And it also changes the level of like theft in this world, right? Because nothing has that much value anymore. So mm. stealing things is not as big a deal as, say, murder, because everybody still murders despite, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you say that, but actually, and, and Monica's the character who thinks about this. She specifically says at one point, like, even the sort of less, non-material yeah. crimes are just not as common yeah. in other worlds because there's not that pressure of poverty and desperateness mm. that drives a lot of crime on the date of Earth. That's, yeah. again, the positivity of this book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things it did remind me of frequently is one of my favourite parallel universe things, which is the TV show Sliders, mm. which was not always good, but um, it had some great episodes. And there's one, right at the end of the first season, there's one where they slide into a world where the population is just really low. Mm. So everybody lives really well. Mm. But there's a sinister sort of, of course, side to yeah. that, and which is hidden away. But they just talked about the fact that, yeah, there's like plenty of resources for everyone and then nobody has to live in poverty and... And you're like, oh, I'm sure it wouldn't be as simple as that. But yeah. you can see how that lack of stretched resources. I mean, no, but then, you know, again, that also sort of abdicates responsibility here because we do technically have plenty of resources for everyone who's currently on the planet. They're just not distributed equally. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the book definitely sort of, I don't know about whether no, I was about to say sidestep, but I stopped myself. Um, but <laughs> <Why>? did I? <laughs> but I think it avoids the issues. And I don't know if this is deliberate or whether it's just the nature of the book and what it's talking about. But like we, we hardly have much of a conversation about you know, sort of colonizing other worlds and, and the idea about that or the philosophy behind that. And it's more focused on like the idea of traveling across great distances and the whole pioneer aspect, but not le- not so much on the negative side of things, um, which I appreciated. I kept waiting for them to like come into a world and be like taking over something, but that didn't really mm. happen so much. But there is like an element like near the end, like the the other yeah. big plot point where a lot of the species that have been able to step are fleeing from something. Yeah. And they haven't been yeah. able to figure out what that is until they get to this thing called the gap. Mm. And they pass across it and they discover first person singular, which has been moving through worlds and just absorbing life. She feels that, like a very yeah, Baxter-esque uh, Yeah, and she's a lady. Yeah. yeah. Well, we should. I think we should explain the Gap a little bit more. Yeah. So the, the Gap is a a really good clothing store. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, but it's also a world where there is no Earth. Like it's been destroyed by some sort of amazing cataclysm. It's an excellent and reveal. So when they yeah. step into it, they're just in space, which is not much fun. It's not ideal. No. Yeah, the characters make it across the Gap. They meet this character, first person singular, who is the character from the start of the book. The whole ocean of microbes that become one giant sentient entity, mm. Um, mm. which has created a a sort of a bud of itself or a part of itself that can step and has sent it towards where it senses all the minds are, but it can't cross the gap yet. Probably it will figure it out because the characters figure it out. They sort of do a very quick step across it. Yeah, double step it, yeah. And the interesting yeah. thing about it is it's not malicious. Like, it doesn't no. feel like a malicious yeah. presence. It just is doing what it's doing naturally. But do you feel... So, here's, this is the one part of the book where I was a bit like, really... Because I really enjoyed the character of First Person Singular mm. and the concept, but I just didn't feel like they sold it to me that 
it was a natural consequence of this organism that it was going to envelop mm. everything in it and eat it. Like, I felt like that needed a lot more justification and build up, whereas they just kind of just tell you, no, that's how it is. It just like, happens. it wants to travel yeah. and meet other creatures. And then I think it's just like one paragraph where Lobsang says, and by necessity, that means it's going to turn all these other planets into its own planet and absorb all the life on them. And I'm like, does it mean that? Like, why? <laughs> Like, I yeah. would have liked more time to lead into that and to tease out that idea. Mm. I agree. Paragraph is not enough. It probably deserved several chapters of, like, gentle dotting that in until, like, a reveal or that we come to the conclusion ourselves. But I do believe it as a concept because it is something that's come up in other science fiction about, like, yes. wouldn't it be better if we were all one and safe and together? And it's, like, come up in a few ways of all, like, sentience that like, coming into one mass, like a hive mind kind of hive thing. Hive mind, yeah. Or... um or being uploaded to a central like hard drive kind of thing in an AI. Like that's it's a concept that is quite common, arguably. Yeah. And so I do believe it as a motivation for this first person singular because it's like, oh yeah, well I'm good and this is safe and why wouldn't I want to bring other people or things into this world that we can all be one thing, happy, safe together. But it didn't get yeah, the airtime yeah. it needed. I think it, it sort of just assumed uh, the the purpose of, like, the natural progression of an entity, right? Like, humans want to survive, and that's our instinct. The first person singular's instinct is to do a specific thing. Hmm. It reminded me a little bit of Stephen Baxter's uh, Zeely series. So that, that series of books I mentioned at the start has some cool aliens. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the cool aliens are these creatures called these Fotino birds. I think that's how you say it. And they sort of dark matter entities that sort of envelop everything and, and sort of remove all carbon-based life. And the series revolves around both humans and aliens having to deal with this entity. So that, that, you know, that sort of brought this creature to mind. So maybe I accepted it a little bit more just because I know the surrounding material of one of the authors had written something similar. And it's also um, like any colonizing force, I think, to a degree thinks its way is best and that yeah. it's doing things for the greater good. And mm. it is a colonizing force to a degree. And its net outcome might be horrifying for everyone, but it believes it's doing the right thing. I'm not saying that's a universal blanket rule for all colonizing forces, but I think mm. it is a motivator that can be applied here. Yeah. Yeah, look, fair enough. And I did buy into it. I believed it, but I just sort of felt I was being was asked to believe it yeah. rather than being shown it. You know, I was being mm. told rather than being shown. I mean, because, you know, when they meet, first person singular or rather the bit of her that is traveling through the various worlds she does have like all these creatures including elves and trolls embedded in her but the reason that they're running from her is not actually because she is going to destroy all life they're running from her they they posit because they can't stand the feel of too many human minds but mm -hmm. first person singular is a gestalt entity like made up of all these little microbes and has an enormous mind that must feel like thousands upon thousands of human minds to people who are sensitive to that. And that's why mm. they're running away from it, because it's coming their way. Although how much they can sense that, because it doesn't seem like many trolls and elves cross the gap because they probably don't really understand what the gap is because they don't have that kind of technological culture to understand space. I guess it depends on whether East and West connect up on the other side and if you can come around from the other way or if there's yeah. ends. Like, is it a circle or is it... Yeah, that question is posed a few times, yeah. But there isn't an answer. So, like, no. you could yeah. potentially, like, never encounter the gap but go everywhere else if it's connected. Mm. If you started on one side of it and moved around the other way. Yeah, that's a lot of stepping. Yeah. But it seems fairly clear that the natural steppers, like the elves and trolls, can step pretty quickly. Mm. 
Step in time. Or step lightly, which is the delightful phrase that Sally's grandfather uses. Yeah, I really like that. Good. And he yeah. talks about the fairy ways and mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm like, Look, I'm a sucker for Celtic mythology. So, yeah. you know, I was I was on board with all of that. That was great. He puts on a whole new um, perspective for that Mary Poppins song, you know, where all the chimney sweeps like, do their step in time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. I think one of the things that makes this novel feel realistic, despite this obviously fantastical scenario, mm. is partly the use of language and that they don't invent weird new terms mm. to talk about stepping too much. I mean, the long earth is an interesting term and it kind of makes sense if you view it sort of as one continuum and then it has like sort of one dimension because it just goes left and right. It doesn't go, mm. like you were saying before, it doesn't also go north and south or in and out. Like it doesn't have more than one dimension. I don't like the imagery of it. Like, it bothers me. Like, I don't like that yeah. the long earth. I struggled with that for the majority of the book because I kept thinking of Data Earth as, you know, not the long earth and then everything other than that as the long earths. Mm. Um, yeah, it is a bit difficult. Yeah, the singular and plural sort of mess me around for a little bit, yeah. I'd rather be like the infinite earths or something. Yeah, that's a bit obvious, but, but yeah. It, yeah. Mm. Well, interestingly, the phrase the long earth doesn't appear in the original short story. Mm. I don't think they really use step either. I say they. Terry wrote it by himself, so mm. I don't think he uses the term step. I think hop actually is the term he uses in the original story. But I thought step was good. I would argue, though, that um, the the title of The Long Earth and even the concept of it put me off reading this because it just is mm. not a compelling image and no, it's vaguely uncomfortable. Like, it's not an exciting name. It's not something that would make me want to pick this up. And I don't think it expresses the concept of the book until you've read the book. Yeah. Mm. And I think a good title should do both. Like, it should entice you and be what the book is about without needing to know what the book is about. You should be able to take a decent stab. Mm. But if you can't take a decent stab at what the book's about, it should at least be interesting. There's a reason why this is one of the books where the author's names are much bigger yeah. on the cover than the actual title of the book. <laughs> yeah. I'd pick up something called The Infinite Earths. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think it has more of a sci-fi connotation to me than The Long Earth, I think. Yeah. Well, look, conversely, I want to go into bat for the name because okay. I didn't find it as off-putting mm. as, as the two of you, it seems. But it also feels a bit more like a down-to-earth <laughs> thing. Like Ooh. Infinite, for one thing, they don't know that it's infinite. Like there might be a mm. final Earth and there's no more after that. There's lots of them. We never go more in the book past about two and a half million, which is heaps, but it's not infinity. And we don't know how far they go in the other Eastways mm. direction. Because all of the travels that we go on in this book, pretty much, apart from a couple of Earths close to Madison, are all west. Mm. It's interesting because they point out that, um, like, there's a character points out that Westerners go west and Easterners go east. Yeah, I, I saw that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I can kind of see that happening, like psychologically. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But it does mean that the stepper boxes must have specified which way around the switch is labelled because mm. otherwise people could label them wrong and they're like, I'm in the wrong place. But everyone has a consistent idea of which way is west and which way is east. So no one has decided it's the other way around. Here's an interesting thing, and I'm curious to hear your opinions on the stepper box itself mm. because this book is set, uh, what, what would we say, like 2015, 2015 right? Um, with when stepper was. 2015 to 2030. Yeah. yeah. And there's a bunch of assumptions made at the start, which aren't wrong or incorrect. It's just interesting that a scientist releases this diagram, this this thing on the internet. Uh, the majority of it is done by kids, mm. and it's building this sort of... <laughs> craft box mm. that people of a certain generation would assume to be more natural than say the current generation uh, if you get my meaning so it's sort of a mm. it's an arts and crafty sort of thing 
that some people would be more, you know, have an affinity to. So it was just an interesting thing that I think maybe the authors connected with more than perhaps the, you know, children who would read this book. Yeah, it's like them as children yeah. in 2015. Like exactly. More something yeah. that my dad would have naturally done than me. Yeah. Well, something that I did, you know, when I was a kid, it was still a thing that you did. You played with electronics, but you bought like an electronics kit and yeah. you gave yep. you instructions and you built things. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a hobby thing, but it was also like a bit of a fad that any yeah. kid who was even vaguely a little bit into science would do. Uh, and it was a sort of thing that I think, yeah, 10, 20 years before I was a kid would probably have been a lot more common in some mm. ways because if you wanted a, a radio, you had to build one. Exactly. Right? You know, yep. you, a, a kit was way cheaper than building a uh, or buying a commercial one. Well, I went through one of those old annuals that, they, like, boys' own annual for 1940-something mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago, and I was flicking through the ads, um, which were targeted at children because it was for, like, I don't know, people, like, boys specifically between the ages of, like, mm. 8 and 15. And they're like, oh, build this, like, radio thing. I'm like, how smart kids back then like yeah. they're building stuff that could actually do things like whereas i thought about what i did as a kid and i'm like i tried to make a dinosaur out of those wooden things that you like poke out of the pack and my dad had to do most of it for me and i was like how did we yeah. get so well, how did i specifically why was i such a dud kid when like kids in yeah, the 40s were I, building airplanes that were yeah they're engines. all geniuses and i was breaking um aircraft kits and i broke more than i succeeded at them so. well look i i i have one going about for you two now because <laughs> y- you're not you should it's it's, yeah. it's not that hard to make that electronic <laughs> stuff if you've got all the gear. now this makes it worse ben yeah. this isn't helping yeah no no but i'm saying but like you could have done it if that was the thing that you were doing when you were a kid right and people could do it now but there's not much point because you know the exactly the way that yeah. capitalism yeah. has evolved is that making these things en masse makes them so cheap that you would just buy, one, just buy one instead yeah. of spending the hours required to build one of your own. Whereas that wasn't true 30, mm-hmm. 40, 50 years ago, right? So in a similar way, it's interesting that the stepper box is a thing that you have to build yourself yes. and only the people yeah. who would build it themselves would learn to step. It's an interesting argument that on step day, it was all kids doing it's all it, kids, whereas yeah. I kind of feel like it would be all nerds. Yeah, And it exactly. would be all tech nerds. Yeah. And that worries me because the tech nerds led the... Yeah, led looking the... at it. <laughs> no, but I think the thing that pushes it towards kids is the potato. Mm. Oh, like because any adult would look at it and go, that's dumb. It's, it's got a potato silly. in yeah. it. Yeah, I feel like it's kids because of the potato. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. and it, But it's like a potato battery. I guess like kids might get into it because of Portal. If you played the video game Portal 2, there's a main character that's like an evil computer, artificial intelligence. And at one point, she gets supplanted by another artificial intelligence and put into a tiny little computer, which is attached to a potato battery as its power source. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, which is going to run out, and she's really angry about it. <laughs> um, and of course, it's entirely unrealistic. Like, you couldn't run any Complex kind of computer AI, off no. a potato. No, a lemon. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, at least 11. That's right. Yeah. But look, you know, we, we're kind of near the end of the main plot. We should probably finish that off mm. so we can talk about all the other bits of stuff that happens. Mm. Because once they meet first person singular and discover that they're going to, you know, she's going to keep moving, eventually she'll find a way past the gap and keep moving towards the datum earth and probably absorb everybody along the way, but then also absorb datum earth and every human being will be part of her one giant organism, mm. which is a very real threat to them. Mm. Um, I didn't quite feel it, but apparently it was. But they realize that she's not evil. She is friendly, like you said. Mm. And that's their kind of one saving grace is that if they can communicate with her, maybe they can persuade her not to do this. And Lobsang decides he's going to be the one to do it. So he puts his 
body, and we haven't talked about this actually. Oh yeah, he's great because <laughs> Metamorphic. He is like an artificial intelligent computer, right? That yeah. claims to be reincarnated human soul, but on the airship he kind of inhabits the airship which is one of the reasons why it can step because it is him. it's his yeah. body essentially yeah. and it doesn't it's not made of iron it's made of some other sorts of materials right every time they said that by the way like jansen goes into the police department on one of the nearby stepwise earths quite early in the book and one of the police chiefs has got like a laptop and i'm like i'm pretty sure most laptops have got some iron in them in one way or another <laughs> yeah. clearly there's a whole industry that's built on finding alternatives to iron for various things. But he's got all these different bodies, right, Mm. Uh, that he starts making. And voices. And voices, yeah. And he keeps Uh, tweaking it. Like, he keeps going into the secret part of the airship where the others aren't allowed to go (laughs) behind the blue door. (laughs) And there's a fabrication thing in there where he can make stuff. And he just keeps making himself new bodies. Except a bullwhip. Couldn't do that. Oh, that's such a... Oh, I love that. When we get to favourite bits, that's that was a great scene. I really enjoyed that. That's so fascinating. Because if you were a computer, though, or if you were a robot, you know, as people, we wear clothes to express ourselves. If you could just fabricate entirely new everything all the time to express how Mm. you were feeling or how you wanted to present in a certain situation, like, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little like, bit. I would need to look a certain way for this meeting and I need to look a certain way for oh, this completely. party. Oh, completely. Yeah. I would do it a little bit, but I feel like my sense of self is very tied to what I look like. Mm. And like most people, there are things that I don't like about the way I look that I try to control by, you know, haircuts and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But by and large, who I am is partly shaped by my physical presence. I guess it mm. depends on what you've got from the beginning because, like, I agree. Yeah. It's like where is your sense of self tied to if you have always had the ability to change how you look to suit the circumstances? Mm. Like, yeah. Like, I feel like oh yeah, I can't step out of my own brain for this. Mm. I would always want to look like me to a degree, like maybe just with different hair or different this. But yeah. maybe you would be like, I need something to show that it's me all the time. Maybe you choose a scar or like a certain feature, like you always are half this color and half another color or something. You choose yeah. something unique. You have a tell, like your eyes are always the same or something mm. like that, which is a classic one from fantasy fiction. Yeah. Or like you have like a Bowie light, lightning bolt over your face all the time or something. There's like a unique <laughs> flair that you have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Lobson's sense of self is so curious because he chooses to be a vending machine initially. And I'm I'm sure we'll get to this later, but uh, the three characters on the ship that, uh, oh, well, four, <laughs> I suppose. He often seems to be the the most human of the, mm. the characters, right? He expresses himself in ways that are much more obvious and much more like fallible, I guess, yeah. uh, than the other two. Yeah, and it, I mean, he's an interesting character in that he's got bits of other computer intelligences that you come across, but yeah. he also I, he feels very human mm. yes. for the most part. And I think some of my favorite parts of the book are where he does things and people kind of go, but you're a computer, why would you mistakenly yeah. get that word wrong or take a pause or have yeah. a puzzled look on your face? And it's never... You know, is it calculated or is it natural? Yeah. Like that's, that's the essential question about Lobb saying, is he really a reincarnated soul of a Tibetan yeah. motorcycle repair? And we keep, we keep coming back to that as well. Mm. Like, it's not something that's ever said, oh, yes, it is. Like, we all assume, and it is fairly obvious that he is an AI, but mm. he has so many human qualities that it keeps asking that question. I do keep imagining him as Michael Fassbender in the Alien movies, like what, <laughs> newer ones. Yeah, the only good thing, yeah. He had that sort of, yeah, alien series, android kind of vibe. Mm. Those characters who are mostly human, but there's something a bit off about Mm. them. Whereas he sort of mostly effortlessly is human. 
except for the for his body, but then he sort of evolves his body to become more <laughs> human-like as he goes along, Yeah, which is really interesting. I also liked the fact that he's got this sort of immense power and he is distributed and he admits that, you know, yes, there's backups of me in various places, yeah. but really I only exist in one place. And he claims it's because he was human and that singular locus of being, being somewhere yeah. is a habit he just can't break even though as an artificial intelligence, he could be looking out of 20 different cameras at once and be in 100,000 different places all simultaneously. He doesn't do that because that's not his experience. Mm. He's an entity that exists in a point in space. And so when he puts himself into this humanoid body that he's built and he says, look, I'm going to go and get absorbed into first person singular and talk to her and learn everything I can and try and persuade her not to do the thing... It is a sacrifice. Like, he, they're going to take his backup information yeah. back to Datum Earth. And he has already said at the start of the book that if, you know, anything happens to me, that's what I want you to do. There will be a, a me, a backup of me that will absorb that information from the black box recordings, essentially, and become a sort of new me. But it won't be me, me. It'll be like a new version of me. And you're like, oh, it's very sort of, you know, Thomas and Will Riker kind of territory where they're both real people and they both have a claim to being that specific person, but they are different. At one point, I was wondering if Lob Zang was Douglas Black, like the the main guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. To the, Who we never meet in this book. Yeah, no. so I was like, ooh, are they the same person? To the point that I start, I wrote out Douglas Black and Lob Zang. I'm like, ooh, there's a lot of um, similar letters there, but not. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's not an anagram, yeah. sadly, which I should have been able to tell by just looking. But um, Yeah, and then I was like, maybe it's without the Doug, because it's Douglas, but um, then you end up with... um. Lasbong, which is not great. So yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you tried that out, though. Um, yeah, you you pulled that to its uh, inevitable conclusion. I had to give it a red hot yeah, go, yeah. and I'm yeah, yeah. It is not a cryptic crossword clue for him being the same <laughs> as that. Yeah. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to point out: I was extraordinarily disappointed that in chapter 42 we got no answers to anything. Like I was like, this is the perfect <laughs> opportunity to like reveal a bunch of stuff because I do it around the edges, mm, but not in that chapter. Yeah. yeah, that's true. It is kind of them moving on from one mystery to the next to yeah. another one. Mm. Should we talk about the grim stuff? No, we should get to the end because it, it and and it is quite abrupt. Like I mm. found the ending of this book quite abrupt. Yeah, I'm glad I knew that there were more books. And I wasn't reading this when it was published, waiting for the next one to come out. But, yeah, they decide, okay, well, Lobsang's gone off inside first person singular. We've got to take what's left of his consciousness back in the Zeppelin, which is called the Mark Twain. I don't think we've mentioned that Mm. before, which is a nice name. And there's lots of little Mark Twain references as a result. We've got to go back. But how are we going to do that? Like, he was piloting the ship, which was what allowed it to step. We can't step the vehicle. But... Josh was like, well, what if we just grab these ropes that we used to tow it around because its propellers were damaged mm. and we just step and drag it behind us? And if you use your ability to find the soft places, maybe we can get back to the data Earth pretty quickly. And that works. And it takes them maybe three or four jumps and they get back to happy landings where they have a bit more of a, what is going on here? Mm. Why is it so weird? And they, they sort of refer to it in a few different ways that like they talk about it has a bit of a Stepford Wives feel where everybody's so nice to each other. And they decide that maybe it's because of the humans and trolls living together. Because the trolls also, they have this whole thing where they sing, but that becomes like this sort of information dispersal. They refer to it as Trollopedia or something, <laughs> where they have a short song, which is like 10 minutes long, and a long song, which goes for like a week. 
but they're all able to glom onto it and accurately replicate it even over long distances and it gets passed on so that quite quickly every troll knows what one troll knows. Continue traveling towards home back to the Datum Earth and they stop off at Reboot um, where the Green family has made their home um, and who they know about because they passed through and heard the radio broadcast of Helen Green's diary um, and they're sort of like, oh, this is nice. They stay there for a bit. And they're like, she's like, where are you going? And they're like, oh, we're going back to Madison, Wisconsin on Datum Earth. It's going to be great. And she just kind of looks at them and is like, haven't you heard? Yeah. Mm. And then we get the the chapter where we follow Jansen. She and, and the other officers respond to a bomb threat that someone has said, we've got a suitcase nuke in Madison and we're going to blow it up. Because they've laid the groundwork for this earlier because earlier she was at a rally of sorts by mm. a guy called Brian Cowley who's this charismatic voice for the phobics or the left behind. He's like, yeah, they can go off and do all their pioneer nonsense, but our taxes shouldn't be paying for that. Like, they're yeah. not, they're not, it's us versus them. And like, Neanderthals all got wiped out when people evolved and we're not going to let that happen to us. It's full on. It's very X-Men anti-mutant kind of senator speech. Yeah. Yes. You know, that's yeah. what it really yeah. kind of reminded yeah. me of. Good reference. Because um, he, and he, he calls his group humanity first, mm. which also has real kind of right wing, you know, family first yeah. slash what Australia is like, yeah, like nasty connotations. Yeah. And in the um, audience is um, Rod Green, who we learned earlier was the son left behind by the Green yeah. family when they stepped across to reboot. Mm. And uh, it ends up being him who has delivered the nuke to the middle of town, although he's handed off to someone else who's hidden it, so he doesn't know exactly where it is. He just knows when it's yeah. going to go off. Mm. And Jansen sort of spots him and realizes he's probably involved, gets that information out of him, and then sends out the message to everyone, step sideways right now, because there's a bomb going to go And help off. those and who can't step as well. Like I thought that was a really important part of that. And it was nice to see that everybody did it. You know, people were stepping across and then going back and taking their elderly relatives and people who didn't know how to step and people who couldn't step and taking them into Madison. And there's this great description of the scene where on uh, Madison West 1, you see basically the the city of Madison being recreated, but just as groups of people. Mm, so, like, there's yeah. all the medical staff and the patients from the hospital in one spot. There's all the university students in another spot. There's all the sort of business people in another spot. And then you get that horrifying bit right at the yeah. end as people realize this bomb is about to go off. I'm definitely going to die if I stay here. And people in high-rise buildings just stepping from the floor that they're yeah. on because it's like, well, there's a chance I might survive the fall, but I'm not going to survive a nuclear bomb going off. Do you think it's a deliberate September 11 image or is it just now that's tied in the public consciousness to skyscrapers? And I think a bit of both maybe, yeah. Yeah, I think it would be hard not to make that yeah. a deliberate thing. But it's also, you know, it's its own spin on it mm. because, mm. you know, it's... It is, it's awful, but it's also this weird sci-fi version of that. Yeah. But, you know, the, the book's written... It's a motorcycle. But it's, it's a nun. It's Sister Agnes. No. <laughs> um, the book's written, you know, 11 years after, so I, I don't think you could really avoid that. And set in America, so... Yeah. But they, don't, they can't find the bomb. They can't stop it going off, and the city of Madison is completely destroyed by the bomb. And Joshua and Sally make it back there, where they immediately run into someone in a hazmat suit saying, hey, we're here to meet steppers. There are signs in the nearby Earths, but maybe you didn't see them. And they did see them, but they went straight past mm. them. And they're like, you have to go back. And they go back, and they're just being told they have to go through decontamination when the person they're talking to gets a phone call and says, hey, wait, are you Joshua Valiente? Uh, this phone call's for you. And it's Lobsang. And that's where the book ends. And it just sort of ends quite suddenly, yeah. I mm. thought. It's very much set up for a series. Like It's like a pilot episode. 
really. Yeah. At least the at least the last bit was. Yeah. 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 And I, th- when I first read the ending, I was a bit like, really? Yeah. That's where it's going to stop? Mm. But on reflection, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of okay with it. Like, there was so much stuff in the book. Like, how much more did I want there to be? Yeah, I was happy for it to end there. Um, I would have liked more first person singular earlier. This is yeah. my abrupt complaint. Yeah, no, I go, I go. There wasn't much of a denouement at the end of that. It felt like just it happened, the nuke went off, and then the book was over. Um, I, because I'm reading on a Kindle, I, you know, I wasn't looking at the percentage at the bottom, so you you can't tell, obviously. (laughs) Um, and then it ended, and then I was like, oh, 100%. There you go. So I had that same reaction, but a bit more abrupt, just because I just didn't know visually it that was it was going to Yeah, it does make you want to read more straight away, though, doesn't it? Like it would have been excruciating yeah. not having the other books available. Absolutely, yeah. But I really enjoyed this book. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. I don't enjoy the other ones. I enjoy them more thoroughly, but it's just such a different style, and it was compelling in a different way, and I really loved it. Yeah, I'm on the same boat. I'm on the same boat. I'm yep. in the same boat. I was not sure what I would think of it. And when I started reading it, I was really like, oh, this feels really Pratchett-y. As it went on, it mm. felt a bit less pratchett but never not like Pratchett to me. Although I guess we'll get back to that when yeah. we get to our questions. Yeah, I really dug it in a way that was different and I wasn't quite expecting. But I, yeah, I really dug it. This one I wasn't looking forward to. I was like, ugh, I don't want to read a collaboration. But yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. It was surprising yeah. because I, I like some sci-fi specifically on that far future. When they say billions of years, that's where I, that's where I tap in. Um, but this one was a lot more optimistic and Stephen Baxter's writing is usually quite far, far future to see him pull it back to sort of near future, but still have plenty to work with was surprising. And, um, yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it at the end. Yeah, for sure. It's like strange territory for both of them then. Like Absolutely. Not, not yeah. their comfort zone, which is kind of nice. Hmm. And I mean, it felt very contemporary. It didn't really feel like it was futuristic. And I feel like the only reason it's set a bit in the future is to give them mm. an excuse to have the advanced computer and yeah. a robotic technology that is required to have the character of Lobsang. Lobsang, yeah. Mm. Although I, I also felt like you could have done that in the current day and just be like, this is all like secret technology that the rest of the world doesn't know exists because that would be quite plausible. <laughs> it, it, it is, it's yeah. as plausible yeah. as it is that it happens in 10 years' time, you know. I guess with a lot of like hard sci-fi and specific sci-fi sort of softer in this case, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider this completely the Stephen Baxter central kind of writing, but it always depends on how much time it takes for a book to date. And, you know, this is a few years after it's written, but I think it holds up pretty well. And mm. I think it would take a little bit of time for it to, yeah. I'd agree. And uh, look, I, I don't know how they were written. I don't know if they wrote them all at the same time, but they were certainly released a year after each other, mm. all five. Mm. Um, so this one was in 2012. And so only the last two came out like the year of, of Pratchett's death and the mm. year after. So I'm not yeah. sure if it was actually published before or after. That was died. the last work he worked on, right? Uh, I'm not sure about that. It, it would all depend on when they were writing it, I mm. guess, because The Shepherd's Crown, uh, which is the final Discworld yeah. book, that was that was published after his death. Mm. which was the year before the final Long Earth book. Yeah. Mm. And I, I don't know about your editions, but because mine's the paperback that would have been mm. published around the same time as the hardcover of the next book, it's got a big ad in the inside back cover for the next book saying, hey, you should read the next book. And I'm like, I really want to because <laughs> what the hell happens next? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, I'm kind of charmed at the back of it. They've got an uh, author photo of them together. And I guess I just always assume that when people collaborate on a book, they're never in the same room, which is incredibly <laughs> not the case. Yeah. But it's just kind of nice. They're, they had a joint author photo. Yeah. So before we get on to the listener questions, and there are lots of them, does anyone have any favorite bits or other observations they want to make in general about the book? For once, I don't have a favorite bit because it felt like this was moving so fast and so many things happened. It Pretty was frantic, just yeah. nonstop things that I enjoyed. So I actually can't pick a favorite moment, which is strange for me, though I did very much enjoy the glimpses into the nuns around him. Like that was, I think, <laughs> always like a nice sort of relief. Mm. Anytime they turned up, it was great. Yeah. Look, I found a couple of passages that just felt so practically to me that I really enjoyed. Um, there's a bit sort of in the first the quarter of the book or so when Joshua's heading off to meet with Lobsang and go off on their expedition in the Mark Twain Zeppelin where he gets on a, a, a small private plane and it describes this <laughs> yeah. one sentence that I really liked where it says, Within, what wasn't upholstered was carpeted. What wasn't upholstered or carpeted seemed to consist of the dazzling teeth of a young woman who, as he sat down, <laughs> provided him with a Coke and a telephone. <laughs> and you're like, this is yeah. weird. But it is, it's the experience of the ultra-rich. They have their own planes and people who look after them. Mm. And so I quite enjoyed that sentence. It was a great voice from his perspective as well, right? Because you're imagining that that's exactly what he's thinking. Someone who's just been walking, you know, <laughs> away from all this tech and then now he's surrounded by it in the yeah. luxury. Yeah. And there were lots of bits where I just saw lots of little bits of Pratchett coming out. I'm like, oh, that's yeah. a Pratchett idea. That's a Pratchett idea. That's clearly something he's reused from somewhere else. That reminds me of this. There were lots and lots of those. And I wonder, Joel, if you saw things like that that were Baxter-y kind of bits. The uh, first person singular was the thing that cemented the fact that Stephen Baxter worked on the book for me. Just like the the aliens, the humanoid ones, didn't so much pull from him. I didn't think. I haven't read all of Baxter's works. I've only read selections. And yeah, I, th- I think probably the the alien and the, the crunchy science talk, definitely, <laughs> right? And there's a lot of it, but not as much as I expected. Again, yeah. we, we're moving away from Neil Stevenson and more towards Jules Verne, I think, which I enjoyed. Yeah. Oh, I did have a favorite line. It's when Monica is learning about the guy who made the diagram originally. And they talk about how neighbors saw him bringing a goat into his house. And she goes, a goat? Cue predictable banter between Clancy and the dispatcher. Maybe goats gave this guy the horn, etc., etc. Ha ha. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really funny, but also that's so much ruder than usual for Pratchett. Yeah. yeah. Avert jokes. Yeah, she's definitely got more on that side, like her conversation with the chief of police, I think it was, or the yeah, superintendent. Yeah, the rust like, bit. Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> it was oh, good. That was, we should read that line. That was that was really <laughs> good. Yeah, when Jensen's talking to her chief, she makes a lot of fun of him. Yeah. Uh, for for being like a dude, basically a typical the exotic uh, dancer man. line as well. Yeah, there's the he says oh, it's starting to get more exotic. Oh, to hear you using that term without the word dancer attached to it so yeah. <laughs> was one of them. But then later on, when she's explaining that you can't take iron across, <laughs> although rust can go across because it's bound up with oxygen molecules. He says, just tell it to me the way you understand it. The most basic problem, I mean, for Madison's finest, is that we can't carry through our pieces intact, right? Not even a Glock, no, because of the steel parts. No metallic iron can be carried over, sir, or steel. You can take through whatever you can carry, save for that. And then she says, um, why rust can be carried over, because that's a compound of iron with water and oxygen. You can't take your piece over, sir, except for all the rust on the shaft. He eyed her. That isn't some kind of lewd remark, is it, Jansen? Wouldn't dream of it, sir. 
<laughs> which I thought was great. That's I don't know so why good. they sound like they're from Boston, but you know, yeah. it's it the wrong part of the yeah. country. But yeah, there's lots of little bits like that that are very funny. I think one of the best bits for me was the friendship between Lobsang and uh, Joshua. It was oh, really was, was really cute, and especially the bit when they started dressing up and watching the movies, mm. and when they dressed up and watched Blues Brothers. Oh, yeah. That that yeah, that made me laugh. That was great. <laughs> And him trying to convince him to get Sally on the ship. Offer her sex. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you don't know how relationships work, do you? Yeah, it's great. And he's like, I've read all the books. I understand. And and how do you think little Tibetans are made? (laughs) That was was very funny. I Actually, on the movie thing, I was really getting to like Joshua. Like, I found him a bit sort of unlikable at the start. But then I started to get to really like him. And then about halfway through the book, there's a a passage where Lobsang picks the movie of the night as (laughs) Galaxy Quest and he falls asleep while watching Galaxy Quest. And I was basically like, we can't be friends now, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't enjoy Galaxy Quest. We're done. I am out. I'm done. Is it a problem if I haven't seen Galaxy Quest, Ben? Ooh. Uh, No, if you haven't seen it, that's okay. But if you you haven't seen it, don't think it's great, then we might have a problem. Yeah. I'll put it on the list. Um, Although, just to be clear, we won't have a problem. It'll be okay. But I, <laughs> it is very good. I think you'd enjoy it. All right. I'll watch it. Yeah, I'd be very surprised if you didn't like it, Liz. All right. It was curious. There's a, there's a few pop culture references. There's also a very cute line from Lob saying when um, I think Sally mentions, oh, it's like Star Trek. And he's like, what, the original series? Or like it was, <laughs> it's a very. <laughs> such a nerd. Yeah. He's <laughs> such a nerd. It's great. Great. Oh, and then there's the whole, we, we mentioned this earlier, the whole Indiana Lobsang and the Turing Test of Sally business, which is how I mentioned it in my notes, where they're talking about going down to investigate this weird civilization. Because along yep. their travels, they come across exactly one civilization or signs of one that seems like it's not some sort of version of humans. Like, because mm. all of the stepping trolls and elves, they seem to have come from that same lineage, but this is one other weird civilization that they don't really understand anything about. It's the only sign they've seen of another advanced, in inverted commas, technological civilization. And so when they're going down, have you got any weapons? And they talk about, oh, he's got this weapon, he's got this one, I've got this, like, cool crossbow with all these different sort of darts. And I can build a, what's the phrase? I can fabricate a small but very sneaky tank. It's like, <laughs> yeah. we don't need a tank, okay? We just need something small. And he says, you're right. We've got to prepare appropriately. Please hold. He stood and went behind his blue door. Joshua and Sally exchanged another glance. Then after a couple of minutes, the door opened and the ambulant unit walked back onto the deck, wearing a fedora hat and carrying a holstered revolver and, of course, a bullwhip. <laughs> Sally stared. Well, Lobsang, you have now passed my personal Turing test. <laughs> oh, which is so good. And I like Joshua's like, I can't, how did you make a bullwhip in a minute? Like, you have to make the different bits and then braid it. And he goes, no, 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 I, I had one on the ship. <laughs> Just yeah, like, why would you have one on the ship? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was great. Well, look, we should probably get onto some questions because we got lots of them and they were really good. All right. So the first question is from Melissa via Discord. In the long earth, why do you suppose only a few people have the natural ability to step without the device, and would that number increase with successive generations? Before we give our potential answers, I do know from another listener that this is something that's addressed in the later books, but mm. I'm interested mm. to know what you think, because I was kind of wondering about this myself while I was reading it. There's just natural variation of things, like there's just different levels of being able to do stuff. Like there's always like some people who can and who can't. Yeah, natural variation. Yeah, and... I don't know if it would increase with generations because if people weren't aware of it for the most part, they wouldn't. First of all, you wouldn't be able to keep track of it unless there was a DNA. I'm getting too too deep. All right, someone else stop. <laughs> <laughs> crawl out, okay. crawl out. Yeah. Um, the, I think for me it was it was more like an imagination thing. 
Uh, I think I went definitely the like anti-science route on my theory crafting with it, where I was I was sort of like, well, if you're naturally a person who can imagine other worlds, you know, so someone who has the ability to do it without needing a device to tell you that you could, like people who are just naturally imaginative and you know the creative types, I guess, projection. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that that was sort of my my gist on it. I like I that. Think the thing for me was the the revelation later on that Sally's family were natural steppers, mm, like it yeah, was following yeah. their family line, and that the implication was because all the other people that we hear about from history who have stepped, they all did it accidentally, mm. and most of them couldn't do it again. Yeah. But her family are able to do it purposefully mm. and without a stepper box, and it's not clear how... How that happens, yeah. How uh, prevalent that is. But, you know, that would... Like the elves and trolls forming the basis for human legends about elves and trolls, probably, you know, people had been able to do that. And that's the source of stories about wizards and um, witches and so on. So, yeah, I don't don't know the answer to that. But I I think the fact that at the end of it, it really becomes the lever that the bad guy, for want of a better term, pushes to Mm. form a wedge between people and cement his own power and push people to enact this tragedy in Madison is pretty significant. Well, to jump off what you were saying, Ben, like it sounds like it, it's kind of like a nature versus nurture thing. Like Sally's family are all natural steppers with a few exceptions, like or her father being an exception, he needs the box. But there could be lots of families like Sally's that just doesn't occur to them that they can do it. Like they don't know that they can mm. step and therefore they don't. But if one person mm. in their family found out they could and could control it, they'd tell another person and that's how it would like the lineage of it would mm. be. So it could be that most families are like Sally's, um, they just don't know it. And again, to bring it back to Harry Potter, to put both things together, more people could do it than they expect, but there'd always be a population who couldn't, like squibs, like filch mm. and all that. There's yeah. always like a small percentage who just cannot for whatever genetic reason. Yeah. So it's nature yeah. and nurture, but I do think that it would probably be a nurture thing. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense because it is implied that everybody can step, but that people's ability to do so varies because... Like we were saying before, even the phobics mm. can be carried to another world, and it's arguable that they probably could step, but it, it just freaks them out so much and that it has such an effect on them. Because it's not just the ability to do it, it's also how it affects you, because the natural steppers don't feel ill, which is why they can do it so often. Mm. Whereas people who need the box have that 10 to 15 minutes of horrendous nausea, which I you know imagine is like a bit of se- sensory overload as everything around you suddenly is at least subtly different mm. to what it was a second ago yeah but it'd be kind of like a more extreme version of being able to roll your r's some people mm. like pretty much yeah. most people can do it but it wouldn't occur to you to do it if you weren't told to yeah i guess so and and again it's also about nurture too because if you grow up learning languages that don't involve yeah. those sounds yep. plus i throw up for like 10 minutes afterwards now <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. i'm just kidding yeah. i can't roll r's so this is from Joel Mullen via Discord. Have you read Baxter and a follow-up independent of the answer? Do you believe you can tell what is Pratchett? Now, a few people asked us variations on this mm. question. Mm. I have read a tiny little bit of Baxter. In fact, I'm about halfway through his sequel to The War of the Worlds, which is called The Massacre of Mankind. Uh, but yep. I don't feel like that's very indicative of his other writing because no, I, yeah. I feel like he's really trying to emulate H.G. Wells' style. Mm. So I, I'm not familiar with his regular style. But you, as you've said Already, Joel, you've read a few of his short stories yeah. in particular. You hit it on the head there when he sort of does that with Arthur C. Clarke as well. So it's difficult to tell whether it's it's his style or he's, he's you know, writing this sequel. 
but some of his work, like I'm more familiar with the Zeely works. Maybe I can answer this in a different way, which is if you've written something, if you've co-authored something, if you've written something with someone else, at some point you forget who writes what. And it depends, you know, on the type of collaboration that you're doing as well. But I got the sense during this that probably someone came up with the idea and then someone edited the idea and somebody came back and did it again. So there's a level of you can't really tell. And there's certain ideas that you could say like, oh, that seems like a very Pratchett idea, which I think comes more from you two rather than me. So my take on it is like, oh, this seems like a very Baxter alien, right? But for the majority, I felt like it was a, it was one of those collaborations where the two complemented each other really well, that it was layered rather than very clearly this chapter was written by someone and this wasn't. So yeah, complicated answer. I actually haven't read any Baxter. I think I really will now because I really enjoyed this book mm. and it wasn't a deliberate avoiding. I just hadn't got to his work. As to whether or not I could tell the differences, every so often there'd be a line like that feels very Terry Pratchett. I couldn't, mm. but it was strange because it didn't feel like a Terry Pratchett book throughout. It felt like, like thematically, yes, but words wise, not so much. It was like a book from the mind of Terry Pratchett dotted with the feeling of him as well, like like an essence of Pratchett mm. throughout. So it, yeah, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you gave me this with no knowledge of who the authors were, I'm not sure I would have guessed Terry Pratchett as one of them because it's very plausible that other authors would be inspired by his work and would put Pratchettisms in. And mm. that's kind of what it almost feels like. Like there's Pratchettisms, yeah. not a Pratchett book. Mm. Yeah, and I sort of felt that with, with Baxter. There are moments of him, but I wouldn't have said he, he wrote the book. Yeah, For me, it reminded me very strongly of really early Pratchett. Mm. And I think like Good Omens, which feels to me like a very Pratchetty book with these sort of game and mm. bits and overtones, for me, it felt like a very early Pratchetty book with, you know, this other influence on it. But it still felt like it felt a lot more like Strata or The Dark Side of the Sun than anything else that I've read. Mm. And I, and that's partly because there are so many ideas that crop up, like, you know, whenever they come across a, a really strange world that doesn't seem like the ones either side of it, they refer to it as a joker. <laughs> and that's yeah. very much reusing a term from The Dark Side of the Sun, his first novel, or his first sci-fi novel. And, you know, as someone who probably liked that book a bit more than, than most, I really enjoyed that. You know, it felt like Pratchett going back to these early ideas. And, and I think that's probably exactly what was going on because he he is going back to the source of this short story that he wrote around that time in the mid 80s and using that as the inspiration for this so yeah i felt the whole thing felt very pratchetty to me but not discworld pratchetty more early pratchett it's interesting that and also joel saint doesn't feel particularly baxter Mm. because i was wondering if it was like a baxter dominated book and if that is not the case i feel like it's a very good collaboration then because yeah I got that. They balance each other out. Yeah, it felt very seamless to me. It never felt like there were bits that were vastly different in tone to other bits, and I I thought it was really good collaboration on that score for sure. So I agree with Good Omens. It feels more Pratchetty than Gaiman, and that's certainly not a complaint. I love Good Omens, but that to me feels like a Pratchett-dominated book in the best of ways. This seems different than based on our collaborative information. It's curious because I've heard about this book before. And what I had heard was, oh, this feels like a very Baxter book. But it usually came from people that read a lot of Pratchett, not a lot of Baxter. So it was based mm. on that assumption that, oh, it must be a lot like Baxter. Mm. Whereas when I came to it, I felt like, no, I can't, I can't pick it. I wouldn't say one over the other. 
yeah so united voice which is kind of cool like and and the early pratchett voice as well which is not one that we get to hear so it's yeah yeah it sounds like yeah. it's a successful collaboration I think so. And I think for me, Joel, it makes me want to read some Baxter. Mm. And I would love for you to recommend uh, some of his short stories, perhaps near the end, yeah. so that people can get an idea of his work yep. without having to go and read a whole novel. Absolutely. Despite Joel's confidence, we absolutely forgot to do this. He mentioned the short story The Raft, and Off Air recommended that as a good starter. It was later turned into a novel by the same name. We'll also try and get some recommendations online and put them in the show notes. So next question, um, there's two from Belinda via email. Did you think the humanoids, I think those are more relevant to the second book, were a metaphor for something in real life or just Baxter's love of humanoid creatures? And the other question is, would you leave home Earth? Like, would you be one of the first to go or wait and see? Which way would you go? And what kind of potato would you use? (laughs) That last part, that's the killer question for me. Uh, What kind of potato? That's a good question. Joel, you said that you felt first person singular was the most Baxter alien, yeah. but are there are there a lot of humanoid aliens in his work? Well, from what I've read, like, and again, that it's just from a limited selection. I've I connected more with the aliens because they were so different, and I didn't find a lot of humanoids. That doesn't mean that he hasn't. So yeah, I, I couldn't speak to that. I don't think. Do you think they're a metaphor for something? I didn't get that feeling in this book. I couldn't pick it. But again, if I would read the series, maybe I'd have a better grasp on it. Mm. So would we leave Home Earth? Would we go first? Like when would we go and a potato? I would totally go, but I would come back. Like I, yeah. I would not go and and live there forever. I would want to go and see it, and I would probably go quite far if I knew what I was going to see. Like if someone said, "Hey, there's this Earth. Mm. It's like two thousand four hundred steps away, and there's these things that look like dinosaurs," I'd be like, "I'm going. I want to yeah. see them." Mm. Um, You're a but tourist. Then I'll come stepper. home afterwards. Yeah. yeah, totally a tourist stepper. Like I want to go and experience that. And I might stay there for a while because I don't often go on holiday to other places. But when I do, I like to go and stay for a while. So I really identified mm-hmm. with that mm. attitude from Sally and from Joshua in the book. Like I, I'm not the sort of person who wants to go on a holiday and spend like two days in this place yeah. and two days in that place and one day in that exactly. place. I'd much yeah. rather spend like a week or a month in one city and get a real feel for what it's like and, and explore it. Mm. And I think that's what I would do if I was going through the long earth is I would go to a specific place because it sounded great and come home. But I think also I'd just visit the park in the earth next door, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How about you? I feel like this is a very... um a writerly response and i don't mean it to be but i feel like it would be a great writer's residency tool for free mm-hmm. um where <laughs> i would just pack up a suitcase i would go a bunch away from people and i would go to probably the exact place i would want to you know have a residency here on earth right mm. um so i'd like go to new zealand and then i would step and then go to in like an older more tropical um temperate rainforest version of new zealand and yeah build a shack get eaten by a mower and be productive <laughs> and get eaten by a mower yeah my natural instinct is to wait and see um but mm. definitely go however i feel like if this did happen you would be constantly aware of oh this is changing human history in a big way yeah. it's not as though they suddenly revealed oh we can teleport now that's yeah. something i'd wait and see like 20 years before trying whereas this i'm like oh like it society's going to readjust around all of this so you might want to be more immediate about things yeah do you think you'd get and this is a tangent to the question but do you think you'd get really annoying people with the stepping where it's like oh i heard that sally stepped 3000 steps away and it's like well i heard oh man that would yeah you absolutely would yeah <laughs> the would. stories and the legends <laughs> and the songs like the memes that would happen oh, immediately absolutely. oh, oh man oh. The insufferable, like, Logan Paul kind of YouTubers, oh, that dear. would 
crop up, like stepping across oh, different no. things. Prank stepping. Um, even, yeah. yeah, they even sort of, um, oh, my God, prank stepping. <laughs> oh, Terrible. that would be such a thing. Yeah. Um, um, as to what kind of potato I would use, I'm real bad at knowing the different kinds of potatoes. Yeah, I started reading about them once and I got really stressed out because there's like special ones you're supposed to have from mash yeah. and you know, just for pies and stuff. I was like, <laughs> I just, just the ones that have the dirt yeah. on them are 50 cents cheaper per kilo, so I will buy those. Yeah, and they taste yeah. better too. Yeah. Sebago is a potato, correct? <laughs> I don't, it's like I Dutch don't Royale know. or Cream Royale, is a, or maybe they're both potatoes, but that's just because I can name those. What about how you cook yeah. a potato? How's that? What type of cooked potato well, would you take? I like a good mash, yeah, but I also like chips, and I also look. I'm I'm Irish. I'll eat potatoes mm. any which way, as much as that is in some ways a betrayal of my Irish heritage. <laughs> uh, but I, but it's also it's also tapping into it. Yeah. But yeah, no, I I love potatoes, and I will eat them any I'd, which way. I'd but go I, wedges. I'm a big yeah. fan of the mash. Yeah. Multiple wedges, you know, in a stepper box, for sure. Mash is good. <laughs> like, you can plug it in in different ways as well. True, but... yeah. Um, okay, so next question. This is from Nell Nell via Facebook. What do you think they were on when they thought of this book? Serious question, because Flail's Hands, who could think of Flail's Hands and more of these? I mean, it kind of reminds me a bit of the Crestomancy series by Dino and Jones, mm. but more grown up. I agree with the Dino and Jones thing. In terms of the coming up with it, it, it seems pretty normal sci-fi to yeah me. I mean, that's because i've read a lot of this kind of sci-fi agreed yeah i think the biggest thing about it we kind of touched on this earlier is that it comes at the whole idea of parallel universes from a kind of a sideways without humans perspective because yeah. it's not about like you were saying this the differences in history or encountering a version of yourself who's made different choices it's kind of mostly about as somebody says it's like trying to run a galactic empire mm. but it's just all the planets are earth mm. and you're like that's kind of what it's like it's it's if you could instantly travel to other planets it would be much the same, but there's this interesting thing of making it much more practical and kind of believable for people to just step sideways into another planet and it coexisting with our planet in ways that makes the political dimension of it quite different to going to other planets. So yeah, I think it's really smart. I think the exploration of it is probably where the, the creativity comes from rather than the concept itself. Like, I guess all, all stories, but science fiction specifically is a what-if question, right? So if we're saying that mm. what if there were parallel worlds. But in this case, there's a but, and the but is, but there were no humans on any other of them. So, like, mm. that's the bit where it sort of gets a bit different. Mm. And then the exploration of that is where all that really interesting stuff of this book, for me anyway, came out of. So, yeah, it, and, and the main plot line, like you said, is a, is a pretty standard Jules Verne, 20,000 leagues in the air between worlds. So, yeah. yeah. It's a bit like off on a comet, you know, mm. the the ship is sailing in the sea and a comet smashes into the earth and carries this bit of sea and the ship yeah. away with it they're trying to explore the comet and there's all weird stuff there it, it, which is another jules verne story it is that yes. kind of exploration yep. of a weird place traveling mm. story yeah yeah and but i really like this comment about the christomancy series because that is uh, diana Wynne jones as we mentioned earlier is mm-hmm. someone who's come up a lot for me when i thought about this book because the christomancy series for those who don't know is about christopher chant and nine life enchanter who is tasked with keeping magic under control in all the alternate worlds and i can't remember exactly i think there's 12 different alternate realities but they all also all have branches so it's like a b c d and so, so he's got all these lives because he was only born in one of them 
And so he right. he has all of the lives of his unborn selves, and that's why he's like the most powerful enchanter of these. I'm, I'm getting the numbers wrong. Um, I haven't read them for a long time. It's okay. Mm. It rem- it's like the one that mm. Jet Li film that you mentioned in oh, our man. last episode. Yeah. Um, except he doesn't have to go around killing his other selves to get all the power. But um, yeah, it is a lot like that. And she also has another series, or not series, a book like this called The Homeward Bounders, which is about a group of kids essentially who are homeward bound. They find themselves traveling throughout and there's a whole Dungeons and Dragons game happening and they encounter monsters and they're traveling through these different things. And if I'd say any more, it's spoilers, but Mm. it's something that Dynamon Jones did seem to be very interested in and explored in a few of her books. Yeah, it's a a good comparison. All right, Mm. shall we do another question? This one's from James Beggs, also via Facebook, who asked, is Lobsang evil or is he genuine in his love for and need of Joshua despite hiding a lot of his agenda from Joshua? I think think that's a fair question because... Mm. There are moments in the book, particularly towards the end, where Lobsang reveals, yeah, I knew this about you and I knew it would come in handy. I just didn't know why. And you're like, whoa, dude. And he often, particularly at the start, doesn't say things to Joshua. He doesn't Mm. give him all the information and puts him in these dangerous situations. And Joshua says, we've got to work on our communication skills. And so do you think he's cold and calculating or do you think he's just sort of learning how to be more human in his new form? So I have a complex answer to Mm. this first of all i don't think it's as clear-cut i don't think he's either evil or genuine he could Mm. just swing between the two or be a bit of each like he is a bit cold in things and i think he wants to have answers above all else so he probably would at least in the earlier stages have sacrificed joshua to the greater good of scientific discovery but also he wouldn't want to get rid of an asset that valuable. So it's hard to tell whether it's um, genuine affection Mm. or genuine need for his skills and company. Second part is, are we only asking this of Lobsang because he's an AI? Because I don't think humans are clear-cut either. Because, like, is Joshua good? Is Sally good? Like, you could ask this of any of the characters Mm. and come up with equally complex answers. But I do think it is an interesting one to interrogate, and I don't think there is a correct answer here. Yeah. Anything with AI is always complex because we have to define whether we're talking about them in relation to human morality. Are we talking about morality as a concept? Are we talking about evil and good being binary? This is so much. Mm. Um, it's like a yeah. whole, whole nother AI podcast <laughs> conversation. But like, yeah, mm. if we're talking about him as a character, um, does, do you guys think that Lobsang changes from the start of the book to the end of the book? Does he start off being a lot more calculating and end up being a bit more altruistic? Do we see a character progression there? I think we see him grow affection for Joshua. Yes. Originally, Joshua yeah. was a thing, a means to an end, and he starts to like him and they're friends. And it's yes. like, there's people whose morals will change. Like, oh, well, this for everyone, but not my friends. Mm. I'll look after them. They'll be exempt from the thing. So. Yeah. I'm not saying his thing mm. is bad, but I'm saying that he grew affection yes, for okay. Joshua yeah. and would treat him differently as a result. Yeah, I didn't find him particularly different at the end of the book, mm-hmm. except in the way his relationships had changed, yeah. um, particularly with Joshua, but also with Sally a bit. Like, he, he seemed to genuinely like them. But then mm. again, he seemed to genuinely like Joshua the moment he met him. He just didn't have much of a relationship with him because they hadn't spent any time together. But to address something you said, Liz, I think the reason we ask this of Lob saying is Lobsang is the character with all the power in Mm. the novel. Like, he's got immense resources, he's got immense technology, he's got immense personal power. He's not immortal, but he, you know, he's certainly a lot more durable and has a lot more physical power and all these things at his disposal than any of the human characters. So it's natural to sort of ask, how is this guy using this Mm. stuff? Like, what is he doing with it? 
So, yeah, I think that's why we ask that of him. But also, yeah, there is that tradition of AIs being a bit sinister and, and evil. Mm. Yeah. So this one is from Zoe via Discord. The characters in The Long Earth being a collaboration are different from the ones we've seen in Solo Pratchett books before. That said, do you see any threads that tie the two main Long Earth characters to any Solo Pratchett characters? Hmm. So I guess she's talking about Joshua and Lobsang or, or Sally? I guess Sally, but... Lobsang is interesting. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, there's definitely shades of some of his other robot characters in Lobsang. Again, I'm thinking mostly the dark side of the sun. Yes. You've got the first bank of Sirius and you've got the robot character MVP. Um, Isaac. <laughs> yeah. Who both have that sort of sass and they're very aware of their own nature, but they're also like, just deal with it because I'm here and I'm getting on with things. I felt like there was definitely some of their DNA in Lobsang. So I would link Lobsang back to them. What do you think about Joshua? I feel like there's elements of a lot of them there, but not overtly enough that I would be like, oh, yeah, no, he's Mort or he's this. Like, I feel like there's just, like, he's he feels like his own thing to me. He also felt much more real. Like, I think in the Discworld books, a lot of the characters, while they do often feel like real people, they have intersections with real people, they also fulfill fantasy archetypes or sort of niches in the fantasy mm. world that lends them a little bit of caricature. You know, like someone like Nobby Nobs or Sergeant Colin or even Sam Vimes, to a degree, are fulfilling these kind of archetypal roles and have these stereotypical characteristics that, even though they're rooted in reality, they take them sort of a bit far, and you wouldn't expect to meet someone like that in real life. Whereas these characters feel like they could be very rooted in the real world, particularly Joshua and Sally. Less so Lobsang, obviously, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> but yeah, Joshua and, and Sally, apart from the bits of them that obviously come from the fantastical parts of their nature, I thought they felt like really real people. But I might take us into the next question, mm. because it is kind of related, which was from Molokov on our Discord. He said, why do you think Terry loves the name <laughs> Lobsang so much? And I've done some research, so I think I can answer this Ooh. question, because Lobsang was the name of a real person, sort of. So, as uh, Discworld readers might know, and we've only sort of brushed up against one of them, there are two major characters in the Discworld named Lobsang, uh, one of whom will show up in a book we haven't read yet. The other one is one of the uh, history monks. But there was a book published in 1956 called The Third Eye, Mm. which was all about paranormal and occult stuff and had a lot of kind of Tibetan-inspired, if not actual Tibetan, mysticism in it. And it was supposedly written by Lobsang Rampa. And this was a hugely successful book, but it was reported afterwards that actually the guy who wrote the book was a plumber from Devon named Cyril Henry Hoskin, uh, who claimed that his body hosted the spirit of a Tibetan lama going by the name of Tuesday Lobsang Rampa. <laughs> right. So I feel like this book is really the source. Uh, I, it has to be the origin of why Pratchett likes the name. And it's clearly an inspiration for even the character of Lobsang in this book. I mean, he went on to be immensely popular. Like, he wrote something like 20 books, and they were about all kinds of things, including one, Liz. I found this when I was reading up about him. Uh, He wrote a book called Living with the Llama, which he claimed was dictated to him by his cat. Oh, wow. So, you could probably still find these books, you know. So, I think this is why he loves the name Lobsang, and I can just see that being such a Pratchetty thing that he would have read that book in the 60s and gone, Mm. this is nonsense, but I love it. it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, and I haven't even read them yet. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds yeah. great. So, yeah, I think that would be the definite answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that's thoroughly covered it. Also, I was going to say, it also sounds nice. Like, it feels nice it to is. say. It is, yeah, it's it is a good It's a good, good mouthfeel. It does, yeah. it does. I have no idea how authentic a Tibetan name it is. Hmm, I'll yeah, look that up later. Yeah. 
Um, the next question is from Aaron Dick via Facebook. How much influence of other robot minds like this do you see? I remember thinking of Susan Calvin, Marvin from Hitchhikers, and the robot horse from Dark Side of the Sun. So that does tie back into Kosoi's question about mm. influence. It's interesting that he mentions the robot horse from Dark Side of the Sun, but not Isaac, who I thought was much more Lobsang-like. <laughs> but I guess the horse did also have that kind of sass. Um, mm. I think they're all in there. I think Lobsang's got a lot of influences. What do you think? I feel like there's perhaps like a really narrow window of how we can portray robots generally in this context, which mm. sounds like mm. a strange thing to say because like you could say the same thing about people, but not really. There's a certain way we imagine AI and... I do feel like this pushes against the boundaries of it in different ways because mm. it's so much more human. But there are sort of like lovable goofballs who do human things and we love that is kind of a theme for robot companions in this way. Because like, there's a there's the sinister ones who are plotting to kill you and then there's the fun sidekicks. Yeah, AI is weird because, you, you, yeah, like you have to sort of personify them in some way. Um, mm. And I suppose the most natural ways to think of them is distant overlords. And then like if you if you just humanize them, then they basically become no different to a human. And then at what point do you say, where, where does the alien nature come from, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, the story becomes usually about are yeah. they humans or not? Like, you know, Blade Runner, yeah. for example. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Questionable Content, the comic that's been running for mm. like years and years mm. and years, and that's full of AI characters. They're actually all very varied. But the again, it comes back to how human are they? I don't know if we could imagine what an AI would actually be like without yeah. looking through the lens of humanity. Because that's that's our boundary. That's like our cement walls. I think that's true of all life. You know, yeah. one of the things that I felt was an influence on Pratchett writing this was the writings of Jack and Ian, who he co-wrote the Science of Discworld books with, but who also wrote their own book called like What Would a Martian Look Like, which isn't actually about what would a Martian look like. Mm. It's about what would life be like elsewhere. Yeah. The whole point of the book is that we have this difficulty in imagining life that's not like life that we're familiar with. And you see this on so many levels. Like one of the reasons why we get so sad when our pets die mm -hmm. is because we don't know how to relate to another living thing except by imagining that they are like us, that mm. they are like a human being. So, you know, when you have a pet cat or a pet dog, we're always attributing to them human style emotions. And I think we all understand on some level that whatever emotional life dogs and cats have, yeah. it's very different to the life that humans have, but we can't understand that. So we think of them as being happy or sad or loving or all those things that, you know, they do have, they would have an equivalent mm. of, but it's, it's not the same. But we don't know how to understand that. So we interpret it as the human version of those things. And I think it's the same when we try to imagine aliens. Yeah. And robots, yeah. you know, like they're so often just like us it, until, and this is something I thought of when you're talking about questionable content, the robots or AIs in that comic are very much just like people until you brush up against the bits of their existence that are different to us. And then you start to go, oh, wait, I've never really thought about this. You just seem like a regular person. But now I realize you could just have a whole different body tomorrow mm -hmm. or you can't really die or your existence is predicated on this technology and all these things that are like, oh, this is yeah, A weird. bunch of your friends that you grew up with do not have a humanoid body. They're like mm. machines and running like systems and stuff like that. Yeah, And coming on from what you were saying before, the thing I used to say at school, because I was a real obnoxious kid, um, <laughs> when people would ask questions and things, was because you'd talk about stuff like aliens yeah, and stuff. can school, relate, yeah. People would be like, oh, what would you do if you saw an alien? And my answer used to be like, well, I don't think we'd definitely know if you saw an alien. <laughs> it could be huge, it could be tiny, you wouldn't recognize mm. it as an alien or as a living thing. So we could be seeing aliens right now and not actually be aware of it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just because it's staring you in the face doesn't mean it's staring you in the face. 
Yeah. I guess this comes back to the whole, like, alien thing that we were talking about before, but imagining, like, and this is the thing people always say, it's like, what if it, you know, are there aliens out there? Maybe. What would they look like if they'd come here? You couldn't imagine it, because, you know, the, there's a thing that people always talk about when they theorize about this, the Kardashev scale, I think it is, where it's like, it imagines a civilization capable of doing that thing. We can't wrap our minds around non-material existence, mm. like carbon-based life forms and stuff like that. So you have mm. to personify them in weird alien bodies with huge heads and bug eyes, like, because you can't imagine what true alien life could be like. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's why we really enjoy stuff. And it sounds like this is the kind of thing you like about the Baxter short mm. stories you've read. Yeah. Where someone makes an effort to embody those aliens Absolutely. in a way yeah. that then they think about how would that affect their culture and their mm. mindset and the way they think and the, the way they live and present them as being very different for us rather than, oh, they're just like humans, but a bit culturally different. Yeah. Like, no, they're vastly different. Yeah. So next question comes from Steve Lay via Twitter. How does it compare to Andre Norton's take on parallel worlds, e.g. the crossroads of time or Stargate, or Neil himself and Reaver's Interworld? So um, I don't know any of those, so I can't really answer that. I can I, Is Stargate like the Stargate from TV, or is it a different... Oh, is it the movie? A... Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I've think, seen the movies. I I, I'm all across Stargate. Yeah. And it, I did think about Stargate quite a lot as well, and this because they do present all the different things that would happen if humans yeah. found out like at large that you could do this stuff. But... um. <laughs> Yeah, mm. I can't answer the rest of that question. Neither can I. Yep. Yeah, I haven't read those two. There was one other question, and I, I don't think we've got time to go into some of their questions, but Andrew Butchart on Facebook mentioned Nine Princes in Amber, which I mm. have read. But I think that's not a very good analogue because mm. that's about, it's a much more a fantasy book, people who can step to any version yeah. of the universe that they can imagine, mm. and that's literally any version at all. But I think this is such a definitive, there are these worlds... And at one point, I mean, in the book, they talk about the fact that it seems like the difference between worlds that are next to each other is about 50 years time of when they diverged, mm. which is why all the ones close to each other are very similar. But like, if you step a thousand times, that's like 50,000 years of history that's different. Well, then there's got a much bigger opportunity to be weird and different to mm. the other worlds. And they even ask questions like, you know, which version of Earth has a livable Mars on it? Yeah. And that's some mind bending stuff to think about. Which is clearly going to be explored because one of the later sequels is called The Long Mars. Oh, there you go. So, um, yeah, uh, spoiler alert from the title. <laughs> but but they kind of do touch on that in mm. this book, so I don't think it's really a spoiler to know that they go there. I don't know. I, I feel like, and I mentioned this before, I feel like it's very different to other explorations of parallel universes and alternate dimensions because it's not about the things that those stories are normally about. Mm. All right, final two questions. This one's from Felix Trench via Twitter. Long Earth books feel very quiet and meditative to me. Do you think there's a deliberate tonal shift or is it a result of what happens when you blend these particular two writers? And I think we've touched on this a mm. little bit. Like it's kind of like a weird like it's a bit a, of the latter emerging. Yeah. yeah. The quiet and meditative thing I think is interesting because there are parts of it that feel that way. But also, you know, I I like your sort of analogy Joel that it does feel like an early science fiction novel. Mm. There is that sense of we're going to explore, and the exploration is the point of the book, yep. not the drama that happens along the way. Yeah. I'm a big fan of early sci-fi, like yep. Wells and Verne particularly. But I often say that 20,000 Leagues <laughs> Under the Sea, you should always read an abridged version yeah. because the, the full version <laughs> is mostly just lists of fish yep. Yep. that the characters see out the window of the Nautilus. And it's that's fascinating <laughs> if you know you don't have the internet or nature documentaries. Yeah, so um, but to just that, read yeah. the lists of fish with brief descriptions is not that exciting as yeah. a as a book. But this sort of I think 
is like a modern take on that, where there is a story, there are characters, the relationships between them are important, there's a central mystery, there's a lot of mm. intrigue and weirdness going on, but it is essentially a kind of a travelogue. It's it's <laughs> it's kind of amazing. It's kind of interesting you mentioned that because I feel like a lot of hard sci-fi and, and some just soft sci-fi, I guess, uh, tends to be very expositional and really go into the world building to the nth mm. degree where it bogs down the story like famously michael crichton's jurassic park right very different in the movie and if you read it it's just michael crichton being mad on science like this whole pages of him losing it over chaos theory and all of that stuff is sort of pared back here where you still get a central narrative that's it's pretty clippy the book is really quick you fly through the pages you don't linger long so it negates the problems that happen in hard sci-fi, which might detract people from reading it. Hmm. All right. So last question is from A.E. Edmonds via Discord. If you could step, would you? Would you explore or colonize or just visit? As someone who's interested in nature, I was intrigued by the different evolutionary possibilities, the exotic biologies. The birdwatching opportunities would be endless. <laughs> That's which true. It's so true. And what a good mm-hmm. note to end on as well. Because like, yeah, because yeah, I do touch on the different evolutionary elements in the book. I sort of partially answered this already with the earlier question, but I wouldn't explore or colonize. I would just visit. But the possibilities for studying evolutionary biology are incredible, you know, Mm. because you can see all these forms of life that have evolved from what you could determine were similar ancestors. And there's various parts in the book where they do that. And they find like the weirdest things. There's that great sequence we didn't mention with the the ostrich that can fire cannonballs because it's got this second stomach that kind of ferments stuff into this solid ball that it can somehow expel. I mean, yeah, just some awesome stuff. And the flying octopus things in one of the forests which just get like one line throwaway and then someone goes, how did they get in there? And I'm like, yeah, I want to know. Meet those guys. Side plot. Um, Yeah. And we didn't really talk about it much, but there's that whole civilization of like dinosaur descendants. (laughs) Mm, The croc people. Yeah. They've had like an advanced civilization and the only other technological civilization on any of the long earths. And then they've been wiped out. Wait, what was the deal? Who who were these people? Like they yeah. had rings and stuff that they they take off their bodies, and they had a big nuclear pile in a big box, which reminded me of that ninety nine percent invisible episode where they talk about the problem of communicating to future generations. Hey, don't go near this nuclear waste; it's still dangerous. <laughs> um, which is a fascinating topic all on its own. But yeah, I so yeah, I would want to go yeah. and uh, and see the weird biological possibilities and. And some strange Pref- birds for preferably sure. not crocodiles though because they seem like terrible on every world they just the worst <laughs> yeah i think i would probably intend to come back to earth um mm. but i'd get all my affairs settled like i would probably like put my stuff in storage or like get out of any rents or whatever if i needed to so that if something really interesting and once in a lifetime came up while i was away i could stay for as long as i needed to mm. so always have the intention of coming back but be ready to not come back if if necessary okay those are some great questions. Thank you to everyone. Yeah, those are great questions. Yeah. I couldn't quite get to all of them, but they were all great. Yeah. So thank you. Joel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank again. you. Yeah, that was great. It's good to have you back. Do you think you're going to read the rest of the, the Long Earth? I books? might, yeah. I picked up the audiobook after I read the book and I started listening to it. It's good. The narrator's great. And yeah, I might, I might just keep going on. Yeah. Yeah, I might do okay. the same thing, actually. We are going to read every book for the podcast. So we will come back to this series and we will find out what happens next in The Long War. I don't know if I'll wait until we get to the episode because I kind of want to know. Yeah, I need to know. know. 
Joel, if people want to find you online and hear or read some more of your mm-hmm. work, where can they find you and what have you been up to recently? I have been in isolation, as most people have been. That's not too bad for writing, but it's strange. I'm one of those people that has actually been incredibly unproductive with my own writing. And isolation is just a weird time. But if you do want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at the pen of Joel. I haven't tweeted since all of this started, I think. <laughs> I just, yeah, stay off. I think I've deleted Twitter off my phone, so it's probably a bad bad place to catch me. If they want to find your podcast, The Morning Bell. That's true. Um, yeah, which, The Morning Bell. Yeah, it's on hiatus at the moment, is. but it will be coming back. It is coming back. Um, and we're looking forward to, to getting some excellent people back on. It's themorningbell.com.au. There's plenty of back catalog for you to go through. If you want to read my stuff, I have a short story out by a U.S. Uh, short story anthology. It was called Strange Stories, Volume 1, published by 42 Books. It's a sword and sorcery time travel book a short story rather and uh, i had a good amount of fun writing it so if you read it let me know tell me if you hated it <laughs> no one's gonna well, can do i that. tell you if i liked it i mean <laughs> no don't tell me if you liked it because i wouldn't me. believe you yeah it's just it's just how the writing oh, brain works yeah. oh, come on all right well look thank you so much once again for joining yeah. us and thank you for listening because there's no point in us doing it unless you are so Thank you so much for subscribing, for listening to Pratt Chat and to our supporters. Thank you so much. You keep us going. You make sure we can keep making the podcast the way we want to and that it is a sustainable enterprise, which means we can get to the end and read and discuss every single Terry Pratchett book. And I'm thinking, Liz, maybe the short stories, like having read the high megas, I'm like, there's some cool stuff in his short story yeah. catalog. I think we need to think about how we're going to cover more of the shorts. Because they're real good. Yeah, we'll find a way to do it, um, whether it's an isolation way or an in-person one. So it'll be good. We'll find a way. Now, next episode, we've decided we're going to skip a little bit ahead in the Discworld series because there's someone that we're just really keen to meet. What are we going to be reading, Liz? We're going to be reading The We Free Men. Yeah, which means we're going to meet Tiffany Aching. Yeah. Finally. Well, you're going to meet Tiffany Aching. I'm going to be. Well, it's true. But it's going to be so good. I'm really excited for you to meet her and I cannot wait to get your impressions. No, I think it's going to be great. If you've got questions for us about the We Free Men and Tiffany Aching, then you can ask us those via social media using the hashtag Pratchat32. If you've got any comments about this episode, then use the hashtag Pratchat31. And, of course, you can also get in touch with us to ask us questions by sending us an email at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. Until next time, if you're out there stepping, whether you're going east or west, please mind the gap. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Joel Martin. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast, and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat31. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.